Forum Borealis Paradigm Expansion Greetings from the North, citizens of the world, and welcome. Tonight we have a recurring guest, a fellow Scandinavian, to take on a subject which is very close to home, namely what in Scandinavia is known as July 22nd, specifically the terror attacks and mass murder committed by Anders Breivik. Now, obviously, when something like this happens, there's going to be a million conspiracy theories, and usually the biggest of them are launched by the powers that be themselves, as in the case of 9-11. And every time such a case is professed to be perpetrated by a lone gunman, it's a telltale sign that the patsy confirms the plot. However, we also know that political terror is a real thing. In Europe, it was common in the 30s as well as the 70s, although in both cases it has frequently been revealed in posterity that uh, the deep state had a hand in many of those terror groups, either directly or indirectly. Now, in the Breivik case, I was already alert to this phenomenon and therefore were looking for points not adding up back in the day. The greatest discrepancy I recall was the question of number of shooters. However, as time unfolded and Breivik had frequent public access, which he only used to justify his political agenda with speeches, and as loose threads got wrapped up by the incredible vast media scrutiny for this case, which is different in small countries than in large, as it's actually harder to control the narrative in latter cases, I became more and more swayed that this was the exception confirming the rule, that this case actually was the old-school crazy evil fanatic, and that to the degree others were involved, it goes to influence from underground networks in their own bubbles of political views and values. It didn't help that I saw many foreign reports on it full of misunderstandings and errors, which are bound to happen when the culture and language is different. That said, the forum is all about unbiased exploration of paradigm-challenging subjects, so I am always open to counter-arguments and new perspectives, so long as they can be argued by a minimum of relevant and genuine facts. Like all my compatriots, I do not know for sure what happened that day, and it is extremely immature and unscientific to have made up your mind, adopt an emotional bias to argue from, and get angry when someone tries to poke hole in that theory. As unfortunately many react to events, incidents like this, for various psychological reasons. No. Give me a good detective analyze any time of the day, and it will indeed get the time of day, if it can stand up to scrutiny. This, then, is what will happen today. Because when I heard my guest, Ule Domigo, speak about it, and knowing he has done great work in the JFK and Palme cases, which of course are older with tons more information and revelations throughout the years, nailing those cases down, it's not going to be such an easy ride in the more recent Breivik case 
but it has to start somewhere. So, if there is just a slight chance that there are other perpetrators out there, for example, we need to revisit the case and explore it. Truth and justice matters more than a fragile psychological character. And another forum trait, as you know, is to not shovel down your throat predefined standpoints, but to investigate a case with an unbiased and receptive mind to see what conclusions you yourself as a listener make based upon the info presented you. In other words, you are fully free to make up your own mind. Based on the info you have access to, and today you will get access to more info that may or may not lead you to conclude in either direction, or if you're on the fence getting more data points while still suspending judgment until the jury is in. Now, last time we had Ole on, I gave an in-depth introduction because he's such a versatile fellow. So today we will opt for a briefer version. Damigo is a codebreaker, peacemaker, investigator, journalist, author, international speaker, musician, composer, artist and inventor. He's dedicated 40 years to researching socio-political crimes where millions of people have been exposed to his meticulous and fact-based work through over a thousand international interviews. Born in Denmark, he moved to Sweden at age 8, where he worked as a journalist, and in 79 he started a lifelong research into assassinations and false flags. He's had many odd jobs over the years, apart from his main career arc, like, to name just some, bus and cab driver, teacher, web designer, painter, theater workshop, business owner, composer, actor voiceover artist, yoga instructor, TV producer, and indeed he even created and launched the dating site called Cytomania, or Cytomania. Apart from creating his own documentaries, he's been featured or interviewed on innumerable TV shows and documentaries, among others Age of Truth TV, Gibraltar Broadcasting Corporation, Devrie Media, Capricorn TV, Bussaw with Sean Stone, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Syrett, The Free Zone, Freeman TV, London Reel, White TV Sweden, DR1 TV Denmark, TV2 Denmark, Infowars, Free Spirit TV, Miniature, The Truth Teleton, World Truth TV, Sweb TV, My News Desk, and Mark Oliver's America, A Nation Deceived. Obviously, he's been interviewed in too many of these, as well as podcasts and radio shows to mention. And likewise, having been an obelisk in the international conference world, where he's been opening speaker, keynote speaker, or guest of honor at such events, that are also too numerous for a listing. Furthermore, Ole Damigo is also a recipient of many rewards, to name some, the Prague Peace Prize, a prize for his custom-built veteran car, award from the National Institute of Literature for his novel Shadow of Tears, another for artistic creativity from the Art Academy in Prague, and he was even adopted by the Apache Nation and given a native name meaning Bright One. On the spiritual side, he's a yogi and received in 17 the yogic name Arjuna by international Raya Yoga teacher Nalanie Hari Lele Chelaram. In 09, he wrote the children's book Yolanda Yoga Panda, Truth is One, Paths are Many. And in 18, he released the book Remind Me, Become the Master of Your Life. And has per today written five books and contributed to many others. 
Other interesting factoids about Ulla. He spent years traveling the world, visiting what now amounts to 54 countries and counting. As a young man, he was an adventurer, traveling alone on an old bicycle throughout Europe, and another time on motorbike in Isowinter to be part of the Berlin Wall down demolition. He was also crucial in exposing two of modern times' worst serial killers in cooperation with Professor Jim Fetzer. He hosted a webinar with St. John Hunt, son of CIA operatives E. Howard Hunt and Dorothy Hunt, who were involved in the JFK assassination. He helped private black op contractor Cody Snodgrass to step forward as a whistleblower. When going to Netherlands to give a 10-day tour, he was welcomed with an airplane circling the city centre with a massive banner saying, Welcome, Ole Damegaard. Both his YouTube channel and Vimeo account were deleted overnight with no warning. I mean, this happened before it happened to everyone else. <laughs> so now it's now it's the regular thing. But this was early. Back when people denied it happened and said it was a conspiracy theory. He was appointed administrator for the legacy of Dr. Rauni Lena Lukanen, killed him. He was chosen to represent the people of Europe when giving a memorial speech at the JFK assassination conference in Daly Plaza. In 15, he had a personal meeting with Oswald's girlfriend, Judith Baker, who appointed him as a special board member of the JFK International Conference. He has also been invited as a senior member in the Oswald Innocence Campaign. And right before the pandemic, he suggested that freedom of movement will soon be heavily restricted. Not only has he exposed various inside jobs and political assassination committed by the global octopus terror network, but has accurately predicted 50 alleged terror attacks up to two months before they occurred, and in addition thwarted several planned massacres by his media attention. In fact, with a lifetime of deep state research, his last name has become a verb where to damagar or damagarding is a term for photographic analysis predicting upcoming false flag terror events. He estimates that about 6,000 people are behind almost all the major strife of the modern world. By the way, this number is confirmed by David Rothkopf in his book The Superclass. Ulla highlights the importance of Operation 40 in modern deep politics and that CIA has assassinated many more people than is commonly recognized, including prominent peace activists such as John Lennon and Bob Marley. Welcome back to Forum Borealis, Ola. Thank you so much. We meet at last. <laughs> hello, Ola. Hello, hello, hello. By the way, I've been looking forward to telling you. You know, I was going to Gibraltar. Yeah. Yeah, a place that you know, and uh, I did. It was wonderful, man. But, oh my God, I did uh, probably the most newbie mistake ever for that place. I brought a car. <laughs> <laughs> It is the worst fucking place in the world to drive, man. Go into the queue. It was horrible. But what a beautiful place. It, it kind of like, you know, we say Legoland about places like that. True, true. Like in Denmark, you know, Legoland. Yeah. <laughs> we used to live just up the road, just half an hour from Gibraltar. So I'm very familiar with it. But in, in, uh, in um, what's the name of the place? Car. Uh, Cadiz, is that what they call it? Um, Cadiz, yeah. yeah. But that's way, way up the coast. Uh, but we lived, uh, we lived near Estepona, up in the mountains up there. Mm. Mm. 
uh, I've, I've seen those guys down there has interviewed you, Ivan, about your work. That's pretty amazing. I've been, uh, I don't know, I've been interviewed all over the world. So, but I used to live just down the road, half an hour from Gibraltar. So, yeah, I'm very Yeah, but such a small place. I mean, yeah, Gibraltar is like a toy town. It's uh, it's a very odd place, I think. Uh, <laughs> And I think that's where the, the word gibberish come from, you know, because they speak ah. this mix of English and, and Gibraltarian right, right. that is not very pretty. And I think that, I really think that because we say jib, you know, people who live there, they don't say I'm going to Gibraltar. It's always I'm going to jib. Right. And I think you know, this is my speculation, but I think gibberish comes from there because it's a very odd language. And it's like being in a mini England filled with yeah. Spaniards. So it's like... Yeah. Uh, and they're super national nationalists and patriots and uh, the queen. Yahoo! Yeah, <laughs> they are all this. But I must say, it's kind of weird that uh, so few speaks English. But I, I think I know what happened because you speak Spanish, don't you? Sort of. Not very good. I wish I could speak better. But uh... well, okay. But when we were there, there were almost no tourists it was covid lockdowns everywhere else right mm-hmm. so i think what happened here is that they have a lot of cheap labor for service like if you're going to get gas if you're going to a restaurant they hire local spanish people from across the border you know mm-hmm. and those people don't know how to speak english and that's so frustrating when you think you're in england right in uk i mean it is. so um but when i talk to gibraltarians of course they they spoke english uh, but i i don't speak spanish so so that was kind of a little problematic that uh, mm. yeah and i don't um and if i'm in spain i don't expect them to speak english to me but when i'm in gibraltar i expect them to hire people who understand english that, that's this is my only criticism of the place <laughs> it's the language I have no idea. I wasn't there with you, so I don't know. Oh. Normally they do. But, uh, there you go. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 that's what everybody said to me too. But uh, maybe we were unlucky. Damn! When I look at at the beautiful background you have, um, I regret we didn't make a a video show. <laughs> Could have had like a you know talking heads. Thank you. Now we're gonna go into some dark material today. If if the last chat wasn't dark enough today is going to be and so to remind you i'm thinking we could do uh, um you're going to convince me of course that it was more than meets the eye what what would i was going to call you that it was more than meets the eye you can say that again yes yes and uh, the second that i hope we can do at the end is to weave together some threads uh, to try to you know talk a little about who's behind this and when i say who not necessarily we're talking individuals here more like what kind of forces what kind of people should we expect what kind of mm. position do they have in society what roles what views what values like see if we can nail them on some of those things and i have uh, views on that myself and of course talked with many people like you uh, so I may uh, offer my own two cents. We'll see. We'll see how that turns out. But are you game for this? For sure. Go for it. Yeah. And it's a little personal because the Utøya thing, it's um, the terrorism that happened here. And of course, I know people who were like, like most people in my country know someone 
who somehow was connected to this. I'm no um, exception there. But, you know, very early on, when it happened, I was already pretty familiar with uh, uh, both, you know, like fake terrorism, uh, conspiracy to commit terrorism, um, all these things, false flags I was even aware of. So, yeah. you know, one should think that I the first thing I would do was uh, suspect the same here. And I kind of did. I kind of looked for. I looked for suspicious stuff. And uh, I discussed with other people who were, you know, who were totally into, let's say, the JFK phenomenon and similar. So I was never closed-minded to this phenomenon in itself being... Uh, a conspiracy fact. Now, I didn't find much to run with, and I became increasingly annoyed by brain-dead conspiracy hypothesis. Usually people far away who didn't have access to... I mean, you you can need, read directly Norwegian yeah. papers, for example, but most people can't, right? So then it becomes like a second or a third kind of story, and I just eventually gave up on the whole thing. And since then, I haven't thought much about it or seen much about it. But when we speak, Ola, and I respect your work because I know you've been digging, uh, you've been actually doing work. It's journalistic work. It's it's uh, trying to connect dots um, and you're not inventing stuff. That's number one. Number two, you do understand Norwegian, at least when you read it. So... Uh, I expect a better case from you, and the floor is yours. I'm willing to listen to what you found and see if, you know, I can come around and be swayed that, yeah, this is more probably not just a one crazy or evil guy. Yeah, for sure. And, and just first of, first of all, I'm not here to persuade anyone, and the things I'm going to say is going to be quite shocking, a lot of them. So... But when this happened, the, the, the reason why, and I don't understand why I'm one of just a handful of people who have really been digging deep into this one, it's very bizarre that not more people have. Because once you start really coming in, into this whole thing that went down in Oslo and on Utrecht, it is unbelievable. And it took me quite a while because to start with, I believe that it was a real event as well, even though it had a lot of the, the warning signs of a lone crazy individual, a lone fanatic individual that is always part of these uh, when there are false flag operations. And here we had this individual called Anders Bering Brady could just fit it the, the, the whole thing. He fitted it perfectly, except that he was a white guy because at that time it was Muslims, Muslims, Muslims all the time yeah. that, was, that was being blamed. And then suddenly they turned it around and suddenly it was like your next door neighbor, good looking. That was a shock. Norwegian blonde guy who was the exact opposite. Mm. And so for many people that came as a shock. And when you look at the reason why many of these uh, operations are carried out, it is to create a shock of fear uh, so that we will, we will, um, uh, to be knocked out of balance, and then we will accept more and more of the solutions that we're being offered to whatever problem has been created. Yeah. So I just want to go through, because many people might not really remember what happened here, so I'll, I'll just go through the uh, official story first to remind you, and then... Good idea. Yeah, it was... And so after a little while, I'll say, okay, now, boom, I'll tell you what I, start, uh, what I found, and I've been... 
I've been into this area. I've been um, I'm working as a journalist, uh, as a professional to start with, but then I devoted some 40 years of my life looking into these things, which has, uh, I paid a high price. You know, I had people murdered around me. I've received several death threats. Uh, we immigrated. Uh, I and my family has immigrated twice because of the work I do. So I don't say these things lightly. It's not speculating. Mm. I also always try to go on location uh, myself to see what I can find out instead of just referring to websites or articles, which can be correct, but they can also be heavily manipulated by the same forces that are carrying out these operations, if it is an operation. That's right. And and last time you were here, I think you told me that you've actually been been here, been to Utøya. Yeah, I've been three times. Mm. I've never managed to get to the island, uh, but I managed to almost get arrested by one of the Delta the team members. So that was a bit of a, a strange experience. <laughs> and I actually did it together with a dear friend of mine, Hans Gorder, who now recently died under suspicious uh, circumstances and uh, where it was blamed that he, he died from COVID. But uh, what happened was that the police came very soon after his uh, his departure and cleaned out um, uh, his home for computers, hard drives, everything like that. Wow. Um, yeah. I, I didn't know Hans Gorda was dead. Yeah, he was. Must be very recently. Just a month or so ago. It, wow. it's, it's really sad. I love the guy. Mm. I, I, he was a real hillbilly redneck uh, fantastic researcher incredibly brave or partly stupid i must say because he was <laughs> under pressure he was just unbelievable he was there when when i was about to get arrested he was standing next to me and he was just so cool so cool so anyway i really really gonna miss him and uh, I want to dedicate this interview to him because a lot of the things that I found is thanks to him and his uh, his incredible tireless uh, efforts to to get to the to what actually went down. Him and there's there's a few Justin Justinik. There's another guy, and then I think that's about it. There's only like one or two that has been really been into this trying to find out and also who's been really helpful to me behind the scenes mm. so let's go back to what is said to have happened okay so it was a summer day in july mm-hmm. and uh, we're being told that uh, anders Bering Breivik, uh, a young norwegian guy nobody had ever heard of him but that he one day he was pissed off with the situation with immigrants and whatever so he decided i want to do something uh, it doesn't really make sense, but he said, I, I want to do something. So he planned a mass murder by attacking more than 550 teenagers on this island that is uh, controlled by the Social Democrat Party in Norway. Mm. And he also decided to blow up the government building. I mean, these are quite drastic things. Yeah. So anyway, it said that he was inspired by the Oklahoma City bombing, which is a total staged uh, uh, false flag operations. I'm even a close friend. Yeah, 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 that's a very weird inspiration source because I don't think it actually swayed anyone for his course. That's number one. Number two, most people can understand that he would bomb the government building because he hates politicians. But it's, it's also a kind of very, very weird, even if you buy into, let's say you are a fascist, let's say you want to do a course for fascism against the Labour Party. 
why on earth would you kill kids? Even even your most ardent supporters would be against this. So these are just something we put on the shelf to think about. But yeah, it's very weird. Go on. Yeah. So anyway, it said that I'm I'm a close friend to uh, CIA whistleblower Cody Snodgrass, who was actually approached by the CIA to blow up the Alfred P. Murray building in Oklahoma City, but turned it down. And uh, yeah, I've done many, many, many interviews together with him about Oklahoma City and many others. He was three cells down from Timothy McVeigh, the guy who was blamed for this uh, thing. Uh, when he was executed and so on. So I've been very close to the heart of these operations. Right. Anyway, it said that Anders Bering Breivik, he had two rental cars. So he came with one van and he, he had made this homemade bomb and he had it in the back of the van and he came, parked it uh, outside the government building, got out of the van, dressed uh, as a police officer. He had a gun in his hand. He has a helmet on. He was actually dressed very closely to what the Delta team outfit looks like. And then he he walks away. The the area, even though it was a Friday afternoon, is very desolated. There's very, very few people there. But anyway, even though there's security cameras and so on, nobody reacts uh, when he said to have uh, left the car and as he, you can see him on CCTV camera when he leaves the car. But then from then on, there's no footage uh, except from the explosion itself. Yeah. And uh, after he leaves the area, suddenly there's a massive explosion. And it's said that he had a remote control in the other uh, small little van that he had, he had rented this day. So uh, when he left the area, he pressed the button and then took off. Mm. Now, this bomb totally devastated this whole uh, government building in a way that was unbelievable. I'm going to go into great details about uh, the damages to the buildings and so on. Mm. And also in this area, there was uh, a series of uh, uh, people getting killed there. At least that is what we're being told. And these were people that just happened to, to walk by the area or were nearby but also there seemed to be quite a few people that just appeared with bandages with blood in their face and so on from nowhere and who then also disappeared again uh, from the area where several of them had never been identified who they actually were so now we're talking hang on hang on we're talking the the uh, government building right yeah yeah because that that is chapter one you know first let me inject here i uh, at that time my uh, office, uh, um, I was holding uh, mindfulness and meditation courses in that area. In, uh, in fact, it was a neighbor building or something. And a family member of mine was working for the Al-U building, uh, the union building uh, at, what's it called, Jungstorge, you know? Yeah. So the, all these are very central. And um, I wasn't there that day. Neither was she. But uh, had we been there, the windows were blown in. So, and people were hurt in um, that building I was in. So, if I had been uh, unlucky, I would have got window glass on me mm-hmm. <laughs> there and then. But that didn't happen because it was in the middle of the summer. Mm-hmm. Everybody was on on uh, what we call a collective holiday. So, the like you said, it was very little populated, even in the uh, middle of Oslo. And and it's it is a little bit odd because even though it was in, in the middle of the summer holidays, 
I mean, Oslo is a very touristic city as well, and this is very central uh, Oslo. So True. normally there's a crowd moving around there, but uh, when what we see, at least on the footage, there's very few people moving around there, only one or two in the area. But when you see him leave the van, mm. also just before the explosion, uh, you can only see one or two. Mm. And uh, anyway, so chapter one is the attack on the government building. And then chapter two uh, is when he drives off uh, about one hour northwest, I think it is, on Oslo, uh, towards this uh, this little island, and uh, so I, I I wanted to go into first chapter one, and then we move to Utrecht. Okay, would that be okay? Yeah, sure. Okay, so so what we look at when when we start looking at what is actually said to have happened, uh, right away there's a lot of weird phenomena that uh, that occurred, like it's said to have been a massive explosion from a homemade bomb. But, and the van itself totally disappeared. The, the only thing, there was a rear axle, I think, was found. It's, it's quite a few years since I've been uh, looking deeply into this one. So please forgive me if I forgot some details. But I've got, I made one uh, presentation uh, that is called When Terror Struck Norway. Whatever I say in that one, I stand 100% for it. Okay. So if I make any mistakes here, please, I refer to that one. Mm. It's just a matter of that there's so much going on in the world and my head is so <laughs> packed with these type of details. Yeah. So before any, before any trolls in the comment on the, the YouTube video, aha, I found a factory that's wrong. Then again, he refer you to his main lecture where he has, because there, or that one is vetted, right? There's no mistakes there in the, no. yeah. Yeah. So go there. No. I, okay. Go on. Yeah. So one of the first thing, I mean, there was total devastation in the area. Not only the government building, there was a building uh, opposite called R4, uh, and the whole area uh, around surrounding that was totally devastated, especially the facades of these buildings. But a lot of the debris from the building were were odd. It was like it was all over the place. It was not lonely. Like if you have uh, an explosive, when you detonate it, you have like, uh, there's this force that is being thrown out in all different directions uh, in an equal powerful way, meaning that whatever damage is there should be equally spread from the epicenter of the explosion. Also, if you've got an, uh, some kind of an ob uh, object that is standing in front or of something like that, then the damages would be mostly to the object that is standing there, like a tree or a car, and things behind it would not be as damaged because of that, because it had been covered from that. But what we saw here was that this whole, I think it was 12 or 15 story high building, every single window was was uh, destroyed, except for their four windows, which is uh, their bulletproof windows from uh, the war center up there or the, uh, the headquarters from where if there was an emergency, uh, a thing like this. Mm. Anyway, so it's very odd, the, the destruction, when you look at what a normal bomb would look like, and, and I mean, I've been uh, studying and also being taken part of blowing up car bombs to see what they look like, the devastation around them and so on. Here we see something very, very different right. because it's absolutely equal everywhere. And also, uh, instead of glass being blown in, you have like an explosion goes off, boom, then the, whatever is uh, on the outside will be pushed away, meaning doors will be pushed away from 
the sensor of the explosion, windows will be pushed away inside the buildings and so on, away from where the explosion took place. Right. But here we see the exact opposite. We see loads, hundreds and hundreds of windows where the glass are being sucked out into the middle of the street instead. The streets were filled with glass, uh, ex the exact opposite of what would normally have occurred. Mm. Then, then also you had, um, um, there's like, it seems the the building itself, yes, there was holidays these days, but right after the explosion, when there was a guy uh, who's been central in more than one of these operations, his name was Tom Bayer, I seem to remember, he was running in, filming inside the building and so on, but he was also at the Brussels airport attack, uh, appearing as one of the passengers there as a, as a person, and once when you see when you get into this uh, this area of of these uh, operations, you would see that very often they recycle the the same people from different countries. They're always NATO countries, and they just uh, sort of move them around. They have different uh, um, sort of uh, roles in different uh, of these events. And I would strongly suggest this could very well be one of these guys. Mm. Anyway, he runs inside. And also, if you have been totally devastated by something that had happened there, there are dead bodies, it's like total devastation. The thing you do is not pick up the, your cell phone and then run around and film right. when you run inside the building. I don't know. You're going you're gonna to flee in panic. That's normal. Instinct. You flee in, you flee in panic. You, you, whatever you do, you try to find survivors. You, you don't run around and make sure that you film everything. But this is exactly what we see here. Mm. Also, uh, the, when it comes to the alleged victims in this area, is, it's almost like this operation is separated by the building itself. On one side, the so-called the backside of the building where the van was, uh, was parked, and where we said that this bomb went off, you, we haven't got any footage of the van, anything. The camera just stops working right before uh, this explosion goes off. And then you just see the explosion itself. Mm. Uh, on that side of the building, it seems like we have what might be real victims. On the other side, I would strongly suggest that what we see there could very well be crisis actors. It's almost like there's a separation there where they've used the, the building itself as a separation. And possibly that the people uh, that if they got killed on the, the back of the side where, where the van was, that they were just people that were unlucky in the wrong place at the wrong time. But, but wouldn't, it, wouldn't it be very risky to use crisis actors in a small country like Norway? Not at all. Because somebody can recognize, unless, unless, of course, these are foreign agents. That's always a possibility. No, no. Yeah, no, it's a combination. It's a combination. It's also the people that, uh, when you talk about crisis actors, what does that mean? It means somebody who's acting out a crisis. You know, it's like, so in Norway there, you had two uh, government employees. Several of these people that had in these specific roles were employed by the government. And uh, mm. I'm going to come to them uh, anyway. Okay. So okay. also one thing that was very odd for me was uh, when I interviewed people in Oslo, people who had been very, very close to where the explosion is said to have taken place said that they didn't hear anything. There was no sound. There was just this feeling of being sucked up in the air and then shaken and thrown down. 
And this is also several people said that it felt like the, the building they were in was just being lifted up in the air and thrown down, but there was no bang. There was no nothing like that. Mm. And there's also, you can see there's people walking around in the street uh, down uh, called, called Yuhan, who was filming and suddenly you just hear the, the sound of glass falling down. You, there's no massive explosion. But then the further away you come from the center of Oslo, then people start talking about this, uh, this uh, pressure wave and also the sound of the explosion that could be heard more than 25 kilometers away. So very odd, uh, you know, instead of uh, what would have been a normal explosion, that is not what we see. But what we see strong signs of something totally different and I've been speaking to different uh, weapon experts and so on, and they are talking about an implosion, which is something totally mm. different, where yeah. uh, the area is being targeted uh, with different, uh, uh, I can go into technical details later, but what, it have, what it, it's all about is that things are sucked up instead of being blown out. So this is the symptoms we see, and I, I believe that uh, what was used in, in Oslo that day was a very unusual uh, type of weaponry. And it's also that is the reason why these buildings have been left uh, for many, many years. Uh, you know, they're still there. They're, uh, I don't know now, but they've been there for many years, just standing there. Nobody has been able to go into them without like face masks and, and, and stuff like that. And according to CIA agents, uh, Chip Tatum, who's been involved in these type of operations, he said that when you know, use implosion weapons, it sucks out uh, all kinds of stuff of in the air and whatever, you know, out of materials of, that can be very, very toxic. And, and the people that, uh, that carry out these operations, they have no idea what's, what, has, you know, what was sucked out. Mm. And so it can be very dangerous to, to be in these areas afterwards. So I think that is one of the reasons why these, uh, these buildings were left on their own for quite a few years. Maybe they've been yeah. torn down now. I don't know. But from, no. for years... What, what I did, yeah, they, what I did was that they... What the Norwegian call uppussa. What's that in English? Um, yeah, just polish it up. But what they yeah. did was they had these big plastic tarp with printed windows on them. So they, was, they were actually like plastic tarp screens rolled down on both sides of the building. So they looked like they were okay, uh, that they were the real thing, but they were not. As soon as you came right, up close right. to them, you could see that this is printed like plastic tarps. <laughs> yeah. And so why in an area where real estate prices are so high, why did they leave them? Why didn't they just renovate them? Why didn't they do anything? Because they, they, were, they were not aware of what was going on in, in that area. I would let, let, let me say something here, because um, we need to know uh, what, because look, anyone can make explosives in their home. But the question is, can you make explosives and this is the official story, too, that he was making them in the farm he was renting. So is it possible to make this big of an explosive in your home? I don't know enough about weaponry to 
say? No, it is not. To, to accomplish damages like that, it's, you have nowhere. It's the same with Oklahoma City. Nowhere near. Yeah. Like what they say is fertilizer bombs. It's a soft one. I mean, of course, it can blow up a car or something like that. But mm. had it been, okay, say that it was a normal explosive device that was in this van mm. that had that power, what you would have seen was that the, the, the mass... Uh, effect of destruction would be closest to the site of the de detonation and then it would ease out you know so right. in the area where the van would have been yes the, the windows the facade would have been totally destroyed but the upper part of the building would have been undamaged but that is not what we see here no we see we see windows being destroyed several quarters away just so you know several quarters that means several streets away yeah and, and, and I'm not even talking direct street, you, even if you turn the corner. You know what I mean? Yeah, totally. Mm. Uh, but when you, if you remember right, you'll, and if you look at the photos, you'll see that this, the glass is sucked out instead of being blown away and from right. both sides of the street. Right. So it doesn't make any sense whatsoever if we're talking explosives. And it makes absolute sense if we're talking implosion weaponry. Right. And right. to... Now we're talking high technology, high technology, not like a lone crazy guy, but maybe we're getting too much into this too fast. Yeah, okay. But anyway, when you see also things like this happen, one of the first things I look out for is like, was the area open or was it closed off? Because when their so-called force-like operations carried out, the area is always closed off. And so the people that are in the area are part of the operation. And so I've been looking very much into this, looking at different photos from many, many different angles. And I keep finding barriers that was put up right before the explosion, you know, roadblocks and stuff. So the whole area was cleared. And that alone crazy guy or alone fanatic could never do on his own. Mm. Then also you have, uh, there's a very bizarre phenomena of the roof that is on just above where the man was uh, parked. And it looked like it was a concrete uh, roof but it almost looked like it's melted. Like one corner of it is hanging down like it, it was melted. Mm. Very, very different. And also uh, in the area where it exploded, there's, it, there's a rock, but it looks like the rock has melted as well. Very different to what explosives would have happened. Mm. But when you look at these operations, and there was one amazing guy, his, uh, his, um, his name was Fletcher Prouty, uh, Colonel Fletcher Prouty. He's the guy in the JFK movie uh, that goes under the name of Mr. X. Mm. And anyway, he became a massive whistleblower after the JFK uh, assassination and has helped people like myself to really understand how these operations are carried out. Without insiders like that, we would still be guessing. But thanks to, to incredible individuals like that, it's, uh, it, they really helped us. Mm. And he said, he kept saying... When these things are, uh, when they go down, please watch out for what doesn't work instead of what works. What normally would have happened, and then when this happened, then suddenly it doesn't happen. These are signs that could very well lead you to see that this is not a real event, but a stage one. Mm. And this day, I tell you, what didn't happen was unbelievable. Unbelievable. I, I tell you, what are the chances? For instance, we, this is a Friday afternoon in, in the midst of summer, in uh, the holiday season and so on. How many police officers were on duty in central Oslo that day? 
How many pe- people do you think were there? Oh, it couldn't have been many. I mean, it was in, in the daytime. It was holiday. But I have no idea how many. But probably less than normal, I would say that. And then again, in a, in a tourist season, you should have police officers around. I mean, but here in total, there was four or five. And this day, the rest were given. In the entire city? Yep. Oh, my God. In central, sorry, not the entire city, but central Oslo, I know for sure. And unfortunately, two of these. Okay, that's less than I would have thought. I mean, okay. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Okay, and and two of these were guarding the Israeli and U.S. embassies, which I think is really interesting locations where they they were standing. Yeah, okay, yeah. and unfortunately, this day the police alarm PC was turned off, meaning that the alarm could not be heard. Mm. And unfortunately, this day the police two weeks before had had to hand in all their weapons, and it was it was put they were put in lockers. So that there were, and two police officers, special police officer, had to be there with their keys to open up should the police need the guns. And they were not there that day. They were on holidays. So unfortunately, when this happened, the police had no access to weapons. And unfortunately, the mobile network just stopped working right before this happened. And unfortunately, a lot of the communication that happened on this day and onwards through this the biggest trauma in Norwegian history had to be done by, I kid you not, fax machines. Jeez. Fax machines, but because everything else stopped to work. And unfortunately, the helicopter crews uh, that normally should be able to enter into it, especially when it comes to the drama uh, on Utter and so on, had been given extra holiday. So they were not on duty. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, critical stuff when it comes to Utøya itself. And in fact, so much so that they changed the entire, what they call beredskap uh, in English, that would yeah. be um, like crisis um, teams, yeah. like how, how they handle entire crisis situations has been restructured. So, so this is true, but I, I guess we'll get to that when we get to Utøya. Yeah. Anyway, so instead of, of this normal activity, what you had been, had been observed the last few days in Oslo before this went down were unidentified people in black uniforms, black uniforms with no marking. And there was also, which is always, always present before uh, a force flag operation go down, is a drill. There's an anti-terror drill or a security drill or something like that. That is one of the most... Um, recurring elements of these operations because they need to practice, they need to clear the area, they need to get vehicles in position, explosives in position, all of these things in position during the drill, and then boom, they go live with a so-called terror attack. Yeah. Uh, now I'm talking when it's an inside job. So was there a terror, terror drill this day? Yeah, and that happened it, they, they stopped it 13 minutes before the real thing happened. The drill ended in that, and then boom. And it was more or less with the exact same scenario as we then saw. What are the chances? Hmm. So right after the ex, uh, explosion went off, boom, there were some people, there's a, there's a newspaper called VAG uh, that is very close to, to this building. And also, I think it was from TV2, 
and there was a film photographer that came running and, and was filming while he was running into this, this location of absolute devastation. So these are the images we have. And you will see there's more or less no, no people there, but total destruction. And the whole streets are filled with debris from, from the buildings from both sides, very different than had it been blown away from where the explosives went off. And in the midst of all of this, there's a handful of people, of soldiers in red uh, berets that are um, pointing on go away, go away to this uh, photographer. And also what they're doing is they're collecting a white cable from this very area. Mm. And when you look at implosion weapons, one of the things they do is that they have to use different devices to mark the target area. And this is done by magnetism or electric, uh, electricity cables, these type of things to mark this. It should happen in between here, not on the outside. Could that cable be part of that? I would suggest there's a possibility because also you will see that the whole area around it was partly uh, what is called or was labeled road work. But what was going on behind these white uh, sheets of plastic it was you you cannot see you can see in some areas that they had dug up the whole street uh, on the back of uh, no half of the street behind the government building mm. exactly where he also came with a van the whole area was when you look at it from above you can see whoa 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 it was blocked off there the road worked there like preparation that seems to have been going on for quite a while mm. and also there was uh, people observed quite a few people in camouflage uniform speaking a different uh, a foreign language they didn't understand what language so <clears throat> okay so the explosion goes off and when you look at the cctv camera of the explosion you will see uh, that it's it is a massive whatever it is it's massive but one of the things also you will see that's very odd uh, because uh, the, one of the buildings uh, behind the government building is sort of like a bit rounded and you will see that the explosion, the way that the, the glass is blown out, sucked out, it comes like in a wave. It doesn't, and it doesn't come in a wave shape uh, away from where the van was standing. On the contrary, it comes towards it. Once again, very different to what we were being told. And then uh, on the front of the building, this is where I would uh, suggest that what these people I believe, are crisis actors on that side. And here we have, once again, the area is totally empty except for a handful of people. And they behave, certain uh, of these people behave in a very odd way. For instance, if you had had, um, if you were just an ordinary person and a massive building behind you had just been blown up, I think you would be somewhat terrified or shaken or nervous or you would look in that direction look at the building what's going on my god can i help what what is here we have there's especially one guy dressed in blue and he when you see these type of attacks you always got coordinators military guys that are coordinators that are that have checked on you know on the back street how are people moving yeah. nobody's interfering and so on and here we have the exact guy who he's being filmed and you can, you can hear in the background, there's still things falling down from the building, like big metal pieces and boom, boom, boom. Right. He is super cool looking in totally the different direction. You know, like 
so cool mm. and not interested. And people come running up to him and he, he said, yeah, yeah, it's blown up behind me. But his focus is away from it. I would, I would suggest here's one of these coordinators. Mm. Then there's another woman that has never been identified that comes up. She looks like an official saying, you can't film here. You can't film here. She, she speaks Norwegian, but she's got a uniform on that is not, it's like a mix between fire brigade, police officer. It's like, it's just odd. I've spoken to people in, in Oslo. They say, uh, we don't know. And we don't know her either. But anyway, she, maybe civil, maybe civil for Svara. We have different people who could be, especially if there's a little police people, they could have called in different kinds of, more obscure. Yeah, I totally agree. But the, the people that I've asked about this uniform are people that are very aware of these things. Okay. And they say this uniform doesn't exist. It's like a mix mm. of more than one thing. Mm. Also, major parts of the area was uh, covered in, in plastic. And this was also, it was only afterwards when they started covering uh, or they started digging this whole thing up, the whole of it. And after this happened, they say that uh, uh, top secret cables had stopped uh, the closing up of Grubbegat on this area here. Mm. So what were these cables? What were these roadworks? Were they part of it? Were they not? I mean, that is uh, speculation. But then, you, then you start, we start looking at these people that are said to have been injured. And when you look at the injuries, when you look at the way they were being carried around, some of the people carrying them around had like blood bags in their pockets that are sticking out, you know, like theater blood packages mm -hmm. sticking out. Uh, also, uh, there was especially two which became sort of the you know, cover girls of uh, uh, terror. Uh, one one uh, woman, Lean uh, Nearness, and the other one was Cecil, something like that. Both of them working for the government. They came out, and when you look at the photos that were taken of them, they were they were taken from. I believe that when the when the implosion went off, they were in the uh, public library behind the government building, being prepared. Then, when this whole thing went boom, they were led through. Um, a building, they came in from the side, uh, there's a side building to the right of the government building where there's an entrance on both sides. And then you can see they were led out of that through the debris. And then instead of going and grabbing a, an ambulance, because one of them, uh, she's got like a 15 meter sticks of poke sticking out of her head. It looks like an antenna almost. Mm -hmm. I mean, awful, awful injury. Wow. And the other one, Cecil, her her complete face is covered in blood red blood or paint. And so uh, these, instead of being taken to an ambulance, because the ambulances started coming there right away, there were ambulances there. But instead of that, they go they, on the other side of the street, they sit down, there's a photo shoot there. Then they're led to the other side of the street. They are there, photo shoot there. Then they're led on the back towards uh, where the court, uh, uh, the big court is about 150 meters around the corner, they're led in that direction while being taken photos of. And then this is also, I've got this, uh, this uh, video I can send to you that was leaked to me. I don't know who filmed it, 
but it was also published in the VD newspaper, but way down, you know, in the back of the whole thing. I don't think this was ever meant to be seen because when you look at the still photos, it looks like absolute terror. But when you look at the video uh, that I'm going to send you, you will see a totally different picture. Right. Because here we see that they're being led and there's five ambulances standing there. So if you got like a poke, a 15, 15 centimeter big stick poking out of your head, I would suggest I would be a bit worried had it been me, you know, please take me to a doctor. I don't feel well. You know, is that too much to ask for? But instead of being taken into the ambulance that is standing right there, I mean, less than three meters from them, right. they put them down on the pavement once again and for a photo shoot. And so, and the people that are taking care of them are the same soldiers with the red berets that were running around uh, uh, grabbing this cable just a few minutes earlier. Mm. Anyway, so they're sitting there and Cecil is standing there with her face absolutely covered in blood. But when you look at it, there are no cuts in her face. There's no blood in her hair. Uh, and the only thing she seems to, to worry about is her hair, you know, because and the the guy that is said to, that is supposedly an ambulance driver, he's dressed in red, he comes forward. And instead of looking at her cuts, you know, and normally if you've got a cut like that, you should lie down, you know, face, you know, legs up, face down because of the shock effect, you know, mm -hmm. that you can die from a shock. But she is totally calm, uh, just fiddling around with her hair and he takes her pulse. You know, it's, it's bizarre to watch. And then... There's this guy in a yellow vest that uh, uh, she, he comes up to these people that are sitting there and he said, uh, okay, is everybody okay? Uh, we need to get you to a hospital. So they stop. There's five ambulances and then they stop a bus and all of the people that are injured are put on that bus. I've got it on video. You can see for yourself. And then the bus drives off followed by an ambulance. They, they bypass five ambulances on the way to the bus. Why on earth would you put somebody that seriously injured on a bus? Mm. But this is when you have false flag operation, buses are used all the time to bring crisis actors, to bring fake evidence, to bring uh, dead dummies, to bring whatever is needed on location. And then it's packed back on the buses and transported out of the crime site without people really understanding what's going on. Mm. So this one is a dead giveaway that this was not a normal event because that would never, ever have happened, ever. I mean, there were the only reports, and I was looking for them, okay? The only reports I saw about these things was uh, concerning Utøya itself, where it's true, it's been witness reports, yeah. uh, maximum three people. Um, but a few uh, talk about two people, uh, but most talk about one. But there were several witnesses who said two or three so-called police officers or fake police officers. And most of the criticism I also heard have, have to do with Utøya, not to do with the bombing of the uh, government building. And like, and you're probably going to talk about it now. Of course. Uh, stuff like, you know, boats not coming, police not coming. A lot Private people had to try to save them, but we'll get to there. Sure. In fact, I think we should start talking about it because we're halfway through already. 
Yeah. Anyway, I just want to say that uh, Cecil is said to have 60 to 70 stitches in her face. Yeah. And in the beginning, she looked like, uh, you know, when photos were taken, she had uh, scars and stitches all over. It. But when she appeared in court, there was not a scar, nothing. She looked super duper. Right. And Lee Ness, uh, the other woman who was also working for the government, uh, the guy, the woman with a stick in her head. She mm. was back at work after a few days because she said the shock was uh, too much to, I, I didn't feel well to be at home. Hmm. Anyway, no. so it is said then that, uh, that uh, Anders Bering Breivik, after blowing up the government building, he t- took off and drove to this uh, little island. And it's quite a long drive. And the island, it's a beautiful heart-shaped island uh, that belongs to the AUF. And uh, it is way out in the countryside, small little roads and so, so uh, not, not the easiest place to find. Also, there had happened a big accident, a road accident that blocked the traffic going there. But still, somehow, Anders Benbelevic is said to have massive, managed to bypass this whole roadblock and get there uh, in a time span that wouldn't have been possible had he been stuck in queues. Mm. But anyway, he came there. And w- once he got there, there's this little fa- ferry called Emma's Torbjörn, who uh, can take like 50 people or one vehicle. It's an old uh, former military vessel, you know, bulletproof, uh, small little ferry that uh, was used. And it's used just from the mainland out to the island. It's, it's about three, 400 meters in between. But anyway, so he came there <coughs> and he was dressed as a police officer. Uh, with sort of like a, a, a sub, uh, what do you call it, like a, a diver's outfit top, a, a bit of an odd, but with the police emblems and so on. And he said that he wanted to go over to the island. So uh, he was uh, welcomed by uh, the, the woman that was leading, uh, that was the head of the, what was going on on the island. She came over and met him. And he had this big, big pack with very, very heavy, it later turned out that apparently he, he brought all of his guns there, but he even had help to bring it on this ferry. And then they took over, they came over to the island. And at this time, there was this summer camp with more than 550 teenagers there from many different nations and so on. Yeah. And, well, uh, well, many different nations, I wouldn't say that. There were probably no. a few. But many of them, many of them had a foreign background or were adopted in. There were many of the people were not Norwegians as such that was there. Right. You know. So anyway, uh, he comes there. There's one uh, this white building on the island uh, and he starts walking up there, speaking to this. uh, She was called the mother of the island. And there's also a security guard that stepped forward and they were uh, speaking to him. And then suddenly, boom, boom, he's, he kills them both. And it seems, or it turns out that the security guy was actually the uh, Norwegian princess's stepbrother that died there. Jeez. And from then on, he starts walking around with an automatic rifle and a handgun and just starts shooting people right, left and center. Yeah. And uh, he's walking around uh, in, you know, big circles. And of course, these uh, teenagers that are there are absolutely freaking out. So they're, they're running, hiding, they're trying to do everything. And many of them had cell phones. But unfortunately, when they called to, to raise alarm and say, my God, we're being shot at. Unfortunately, the police didn't believe the teenagers. 
So they said, no, 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 no. Uh, you are misunderstanding that it happened in Oslo. It didn't happen on that island. Yeah. No, but it's happening right now. It's happening right now. No, no. So what they were told was, please get your, your parents to call us and then we will listen to you. So the teen and many teenagers. I mean, I mean, this sounds like Norwegian incompetence to me. I haven't heard this before, uh, but this could be. This doesn't have to be sinister. This may be just, you know, idiots. Listen, <laughs> very believable. I'm, I'm just pointing things out. I'm just. Pointing, then, then. I know, I know, and and it is amazing. Okay, but it, it still it it could be sinister, but it could also be that single point. But you write about the boats. But if I can, are you going to talk about the boats? If not, I'm going to say something about. No, it. but please, if you just uh, spare with me, I'm coming to the okay. boats. I'm coming to everything. Okay, okay, okay. So unfortunately, also hundreds of distress calls never got through because the phone line was occupied. That's right. And unfortunately, the police units in Berum and Drammen were not used. They were there. They heard of that things were going down, but they were said, no, no, don't come. We don't need you. Mm. And then the, the, the police, also the local police, when they, when they wanted to go there, it turned out that the police car's battery was dead. So they couldn't use the vehicle. Mm. And I'm like, how long does it take to get a battery? I mean, I mean, jumper cables, <laughs> it's not that big a deal. Yeah. But because what we're seeing is that there's a delay of more than one hour when Whoever was shooting on that island had no resistance whatsoever. Could just go around and slaughter people right, left, and center. No shoppers, no boats coming to the rescue. No, nothing. No, nothing. Mm. And then we have this, uh, the infamous MS Torbjörn, this little ferry that I've been there and uh, looking around on. So what happened with that one? Well, when the starting uh, started, when the shooting started. Uh, Eskil Pedersen, who was the, uh, who was the, um, what do you call it? Uh, he was the, the youth leader uh, on the island and should, I would say, should have been a brave individual trying to save people there. When the shooting started, it said that uh, either he was called, his, uh, his uh, story cha has changed a few times, but somebody called him or screamed to him, you need to get out, you need to get out, get down on the boat and let's go. So nine people, I'm still trying to identify all nine of them, I've got most of them, ran down to this uh, uh, ferry boat that was bulletproof. And at that point also, some teenager has started swimming from the island towards the mainland trying to escape. Mm. So did they stop to pick them up? Did they try to save them? Did they try to do whatever? Absolutely not. What they did instead was that they took the ferry and instead of going to the mainland, which was only three, 300 meters, they turned north and they went up towards Storøya, where, I mean, several kilometers, halfway there, they turned off the engine, they were floating around, they said that, oh, we were, we were making these phone calls to the government, to this, whatever the reason was, I do not know. But in the end, what they did was they went all the way up very close and opposite Storøya, and then they rammed the boat, they full speed ahead, right up on land, making it totally uh, useless. So nobody could use it, not even the police. When they came, they could get over to the boat in a bulletproof armored vessel. That would have been perfect. Mm. And also, unfortunately, when uh, this whole thing happened, the so-called Tetra and uh, the analog system couldn't communicate with each other for the police and the Delta team and so on. So they couldn't speak to each other. 
And unfortunately, there was a police helicopters with sharpshooters that was ready to go in Oslo. They were told to stand down. They were told, they were given the order to stand down. I'm still trying to, to find out who gave the order, but they were told to stand down. I had that from the sharpshooters themselves. And unfortunately, uh, phone calls were di diverted to the wrong police station. They say that there was this uh, uh, connection system, uh, old analog system, that unfortunately this day were, were the cables were the wrong way. So the, the, the calls were di diverted to the wrong police station. And unfortunately, the Bell 720 helicopters from the Rodriguez squadron were all without fuel. So they couldn't fly for one hour, all of them out of fuel. I mean, really, yeah, with, yeah. we're talking Norway, NATO, these, I mean, some of your forces are famous in the world for being super efficient, super good. And here we see the exact opposite. Yeah. So now... And, and there was even police who wanted to go there from other departments who were technically closer. But no, they had to, they, they weren't allowed to go. Yeah. So... That was the one I just, yeah. th those were the ones yeah. I told you about with the, uh, mm. from uh, Berum and Drammen. Yeah. They were not, they wanted to go there, but they, was, they were said, no, there's no need mm. for it. But now in on stage comes the so-called Delta team, who was the one that was uh, carrying out the, the drill beforehand and who are super, super skilled. They are, they're known to be the elite teams. So they would be perfect for this whole thing. So what happened? There were, as far as I remember, five Delta teams this day, and all of them were very badly coordinated. They couldn't find the island. They couldn't find their ways. It was like chaos, chaos. And of course, in a situation like that, you have to, you have to be, be prepared that some things will be chaotic because it, it's, it was a horrible thing that nobody was really aware of was going to go down, at least that's the official story. Anyway, so there's this little camping ground called Utvika. Uh, and uh, when the Delta team came, they, they couldn't find the island. So they, they, you, you had them film. They come down at this camping place where I've been as well. And they ask, where is it? Where is it? And people are pointing over. It's like three, four hundred meters over to the island. It's there. And there are boats there, private boats there. All you know that they could just take take and get to the island because this the shooting was going on all the time when this whole thing is being delayed every single minute people were getting killed you know so and there were private private boats trying to help the kids so they could see them yeah exactly but uh, I, I don't believe that really Norwegians who didn't know where it was uh, I, that sounds very weird huh. No, but I, I would say that when you come on that little road, this is the reason why it's good to be to go on location. When you come to that little road to find the ferry yeah. where the ferry is, it's a, it's a sharp little turn to the left and it's a, a small little road that goes down there. So if you are panicking or if you're driving like yeah, 200 okay. kilometers, maybe you can miss it. But anyway, so they, they're being told the island is there. So what do they do? Because they had rubber boats and so on. What do they do? They take off and they drive north uh, all the way up to even further north of where, uh, where they jammed the, the, the ferry boat up there on, on land and up near uh, Storia. It's at least three and a half kilometers, something more than that. And then 
they put a rubber boat. I mean, we're talking about there's shooters on the island. So, yeah, instead of taking an, an armored vessel like, uh, like uh, the ferry, let's take a rubber boat that can be sank, sunk with one shot, you know. So, so how many people on this super train Delta team gets into a rubber boat? Eleven. So they can't even fit in because they're so heavily armed and with all of the bulletproof vests and so on. So they're standing up, or 11 people standing up, going towards the island where there is a shooter that could just, uh, you know, take them one by one, pum, 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 if he wanted to. Mm. But anyway, they're going there towards the island. This is being filmed. And then because there are that many in the, in the rubber boat, it starts taking in water. And then the water kills the engine. So... The, this amazing super team of uh, Delta t- uh, soldiers here are suddenly floating around, totally not doing it. It's like a Monty Python sketch. Yeah. So a, a private boat comes up to them and said, what the hell is going on? They're shooting over there. Yeah, we know, we know. So anyway, so they, they take the, the private boat, they take over that one, and, they, and another boat as well. So two boats with Delta team members goes finally, finally towards the island where slaughter is carrying out, being carried out at the whole time. Mm. But unfortunately, on the way there, someone in the police boat blocked the radio cam- channel uh, you know, by pressing in uh, the, the button on, on the police radio, meaning they blocked the channel so that nobody could communicate with each other. Hmm. Unfortunately. Yeah. So anyway, while all of this happened, we have Anders Bering Breivik, who was walking around shooting people, being described, um, you know, as different people. Like you said, there were there were people that said there was up to five shooters. Most of them, uh, if there was not just one. five, I've only heard three. Actually. Yeah, but, but f- someone actually reported five. Okay. Five is the most. Then the three. There were several people talking about three, and multiple to- people talking about two. Yeah, even yeah. describing them what they looked like, and also people on the mainland heard that they were shooting in different places. Yeah. Different directions. Yeah. And, and I have to say, to this day, there's still some witnesses saying there were two. Of course, they tried to explain this away, but, but other stuff. But uh, it seems that as if Breivik was firing 300 shots in this hour that he could walk around and, um, you know, just... And, and there were, by the way, they reported around, I think it's around 600 youths there. No. And just to people understand the distance to swim, it's uh, 550 meters. How much is that in, uh, do you know how much that is in the English measurements? Yeah, it's more or less the same in yards. So 500 yards. It's very close. It's very close Okay. when you think of it. But at the same time, if you're swimming and somebody's shooting at you, it's terrifying yeah. because also because of the distance is that close. But many of those kids could never have made it 500 meters swimming now anyway while all of this was happening the police got a phone call mm. and was it any police at all that just got the phone call i mean all of the lines were jammed but one phone call went through and it came to us uh, not the main uh, police station but it came to the guy who was responsible for the delta team and it was Anders Bering Breivik who was calling from his cell phone saying hello my name is um uh, Anders Bering Breivik of the Norwegian anti-communist uh, resistance movement or something like that. Uh, I have uh, blah, 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 blah. I'm ready to surrender. 
And and then the the police. This has been recorded as well. The police is like, yeah, he's like making, yeah, but uh, from what phone are you calling? Blah. And so so he disconnects the call. Anders Bjerg calls back a little bit later, saying, "I've done my, I've done what I'm supposed to do here. I'm ready to surrender to the Delta team." He names them the Delta team. How how could he know that? Right. Anyway, so the Delta team at the same time they arrive, they split up and two. Uh, two groups and they split up and hide behind a white van that has never really been explained where did that van come from because uh, officially that no, it's not supposed to be there mm. and then they manage to circle in from two different directions and they find and uh, get uh, Anders Bjerg to surrender he's very calm he as soon as the, he's being approached he puts down his gun he goes down on his knee and then the same person who later tried to to arrest me puts the handcuffs on him. Uh, the policeman's name is Hans Hamburg. I'm, I'm sure we're going to talk a little about Breivik and his background too, but let me also inject a couple of factoids that's relevant and interesting. Um, the same day uh, that he did this, Kuhal and Brundtland, she's a famous prime minister. She was also the head of WHO for a while. And Jan Stoltenberg, who is also a former prime minister, and I think currently the NATO boss, isn't he? Oh. Both those, that gal and the guy, were supposed to be there that day. But there was a schedule change. So they were leaving, I think it was like uh, 11 o'clock in the, before noon uh, the same day. So technically, his plan, I think, was to take them down too, that they were supposed to be there. but by um, synchronicity or something, they they left before, which I, I find interesting. It's not totally correct, though. Grohal and Brundtland, yes, she was there in the morning. Yeah. And Grohal and Brundtland is not just anyone, I tell you that. She is the mother of Norway and all of that. But she is also a Bilderberg member. She is a key player in many of the New World Order agendas. She is also one, the main architect, together with Maurice Strong, behind what is called Agenda 21. And that's, exactly that's right. That's right. And and she's the one in Norway who turned uh, the Labour movement, the Labour Party, all that stuff, from traditional social democracy and into neoliberalism, which is it still is today, you know, like a democratic party, if you like, or yeah. any neoliberals in the world. So, yeah, she kind of hijacked the entire political course of Norway. But on an international uh, stage as well, she is major, major in this whole thing. So it is yeah. very interesting, just like you said, that she was there in the morning. Mm. Uh, Jens Stoltenberg wasn't supposed to be there, but mm. but he is a key element in this whole operation as well, I believe. Okay, I, th- I think he was supposed to be there the day after then, something like that. Yeah, yeah. He was. He's also a Bilderberger, and uh, yeah. During his career as a young, he was working very hard officially against NATO. And then suddenly this happens and then he's, he's appointed head of NATO, and, uh, which is a very weird twist in, uh, of this whole thing. And I, in, in my world, the way I see it, I think that he was awarded that uh, position as a thank you for his loyalty in the operation that day. Mm. Because I believe that these two... Uh, Bilderbergers were key in the whole carrying out of, of that operation. The way the whole setup, we, we haven't gone into any of the details around these two, but uh, yeah. Mm. And so anyway, 
we have the person who was arrested and who said to be Anders Bering Breivik. There's photos taken of them. He's, he is in this uh, sort of like, um, I don't know what you want to call it, uh, like a diver's outfit, a top, you know, like a, a wetsuit yeah. type, but with a, a police emblem on his left shoulder. The, the guy there uh, is quite heavy set, quite muscular. He's got big pecs, you know, on, on his chest, big uh, biceps. And also he's, uh, uh, well, his facial structure is in a certain way, uh, not a lot of hair on his head. And the, his top is dark blue. But the guy who is arrested, or at least that is taken photo of inside the building on Utrecht, uh, he is dressed very similar, but in a gray outfit and not buff. He's not as muscular at all. And when you look at the photos on Anders Bering Breitvik over the years, I I have four individuals that they don't even look alike. They're very, very different. Also, the measurement, you know, the facial recognition thing, it, it doesn't fit in at all. You know, the distance between the eyes and the nose and the mouth and, and these things that are nowadays used by AI. Okay. It doesn't fit in at all. So we got different individuals that is being presented as Anders Bering Breivik that very day. Also, you had, there was a news chopper because the only helicopter that came during this whole hour, when this, there was more than an hour, when this slaughter took place, the only one that came there was a news helicopter. And when he filmed, uh, that you can see that the one that is said to be Anders Bering Breivik is walking around with a rifle, aiming at some teenagers at the, near the beach or he was actually uh, in almost in the water. But he's got uh, details on that uniform that doesn't match up at all with the uniform that Anders Bering Breivik is carrying or wears when he was arrested. And also, he was left-handed, the guy with the rifle, and Anders Bering Breivik is right-handed. Yeah, I've heard about that. And then also, after Anders Bering Breivik was arrested, when you look at the timeline, Six to seven minutes after his arrest, the shooting was still continuing, according to people on, on the mainland. So, so how is that even possible? possible? I would say it's not. All of our files are free and will remain free. If you like the show, you can show support by donating $1 to help with expenses. Just use the PayPal link on our website, YouTube channel, or Facebook page. Thanks. Anyway, at the same time also, when all of these things happened, there were two unidentified black helicopters circling the area. They were there the day before. They were there when this operation uh, went uh, was carried out, and they have never been explained. And black helicopters is a reoccurring uh, thing that uh, often takes place in these uh, areas. That's right. So anyway, we had, uh, uh, like you said, there were several different uh, people talking about multiple shooters. One of them was the daughter of uh, a high-ranking police officer, and she even said that not only how he was armed and, and described some of these different shooters, but also that they had hung explosives in the trees. One thing that is very odd, though, is that uh, when you see the footage of 
the island when the shooting uh, was occurring, there was officially 550 teenagers on this island, which is half a thousand people. Mm. And the island is not big. But when you see the aerial footage, you only see a handful of people. And then you, when you hear the testimonies of the people that were saying, well, we were hiding in the toilet here, we were hiding there, we were hiding there. When you start and in the sea. So uh, actually two, 200 of them were rescued by private boats, just people on holiday because the police didn't come, right? So they picked up people from the sea. At least 200 were picked up from the sea. Yeah. I really want to question that number. Oh, okay. I have never heard that before. In fact, in fact, the highest number, say it was 700 people on Utøya. But I think the um, official numbers are 564. Okay. So also the... There were 11 helicopters available in this whole time, also with, with pilots saying, I'm ready, I'm ready, we can go, we can go. Right. Uh, 11 was available, none were used during the shooting. Mm. Instead, they were flown, landed on, on Sturia, some of them, but none of them were in, interfering. Mm. And also, unfortunately, uh, a lot of the info from the shooting, from the police uh, communication and so on, was never added to the logs in Oslo. So the, in Oslo, never they couldn't, understand what was going on. They had no idea. So they were sending, you know, fire brigade and ambulances in the whole, in the wrong directions and so on. And unfortunately, if you want to call it that, uh, when the ambulance crews came to the Utøya, they were stopped by police from getting down there to, to start taking care of uh, many of the injured teenagers. You know, the, the images you see is later on because like you said, many were rescued, many were, you know, like, please take me to hospital. Yeah. But the police or whoever was there in police uniforms were stopping the ambulance drivers. I've spoken to some of these ambulance drivers. They were, they were like, what the hell is going on? We need to, to help them. No, no, you cannot go down. It's too dangerous. Mm. You could be shot at or whatever. Mm. And also uh, the defense helicopters that, that were used, they were used, but only one hour after the shooting began. Yeah. And then it is said then to start with, you know, when, when they went out in the press uh, and said, oh, it's so horrible. It's uh, this incredible tragedy has happened. And the number 86 was reported when it came to dead in people here, uh, teenagers and grown up, 86 in total, which was then later, several days later, they said, uh, 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 no, we're very sorry. We, we miscalculated because uh, actually there's 69. I mean, how can you go from 86? I've got multiple press conferences where they're talking about 86 dead people. And then you said, no, oh, 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 sorry, it was 69. And then they say, well, it was like, yeah, but we, we you know, the blankets were covering the bodies. So, and, and they were using the same blankets for two bodies. So it's. And people uh, heard, overheard that there was technical staff, forensic staff that came over to the island and they said, oh, my God, it's so awful. There's blood everywhere. We need to burn everything. Mm. We need to burn everything. Mm. Is that how you deal with a crime scene? <laughs> no. And then uh, after 69, then that number changed to, in the end to 77. Yeah, but I think that's in including the people in the people Oslo in Oslo. Yeah, yeah exactly. Mm. But several uh, 
of the parents have never been given the autopsy reports. And the autopsy reports are all of them bizarre. There's, you know, there's no referral in, in a normal autopsy report. You have like, okay, the victim was hit uh, two times with a, a caliber 38, uh, most probably from a Remington and a 45 from this weapon. Right. Here, it's just a gunshots, rifle shot, nothing like that. And, and there were never, many parents were never given the autopsy report. Wow. And several, uh, I've spoken to several parents to dead children, and they said, we were informed that our daughter drowned, but then when, when we got her, her uh, body bag back, you know, and, and we opened the coffin, she was filled with bullet holes. Mm. It didn't, I mean, it doesn't match up mm. at all, at all. No, no. So is that just in, incompetence or what is it? Mm. So, and it just gets more and more and more bizarre. And I, I want to point out also that I don't think that there's a lot of uh, people aware of that. Where Utøya is, right north of that, is a big, uh, bigger island. I mean, these islands are not big, but a bigger one called Sturøya. And not far from where they rammed up the, the ferry to where it was just stuck, and not far from where they put in the rubber boat where the Delta team jumped in, is an undercover, uh, no, underground war center. Uh, of, uh, really? Yeah, it, it goes wow. in. You drive just a few hundred meters further up, uh, it's on the right-hand side. There's a tunnel going in. Yeah. It's called uh, uh, Central Logit or something like that, if I remember right. That's on Swedish. Um, yeah, but it's. Uh, let, let me just see. I got it here, uh, if I can see it. Well, you find that. I, I have an interesting fact to it. 75 years prior. Central Anlegit is the name of it. Central Anlegit. I'm going to look it up. 75 years prior to this, Leo Trotsky. Was actually on the island. At Utøya. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it it is very odd, you know, and and Utøya has been recurrently also when it comes to MK Ultra experiments and stuff have been uh, referred to. So it's like it's a very. I mean, this is not a big island, and and also there was there's been a lot of weird things I would say following this whole thing because I've been trying to get in touch with parents or people that have been affected by this saying, please help me, let's find out what happened, you know, to get some kind of understanding, to get some kind of closure, because this is such a tragic event. So the people around the victims, many people there are actually not pleased and, and they are still asking questions? I don't know, because, I'm, you know, I've been going to Oslo. I've been giving uh, lectures, very detailed lectures, yeah. twice, like in one week, like on Thursday, Tuesday and Thursday. And I've said, please, on the Tuesday one, please, you know people who, who have lost the children. You know people who, you know, mm. I'm here. I'm one of the few that wants to try and help you. Please come and contact me. Come on Thursday. And so we can move this forward. Mm. Zero absolutely zero has contacted me and this is a recurring thing also from from uh, hans gorder uh, who was uh, he also said it was very hard to get in touch with people they nobody did wanted to speak and very weird things i've, I've seen in the press you know there was this woman for instance who was uh, they uh, it said that her daughter was killed that day mm. and she in in an interview this is what she said I came home to my husband 
And I said, listen, honey, um, I've got good news and bad news. What do you hear? What do you want to hear first? And he said, give me the bad news first. Well, our daughter has been murdered. Jeez. Okay. He said, so give me the good news. Jens Stoltenberg is going to be at the funeral. Is that what? No, nobody talks. No, no, no. no. And no. nobody talks like that. No. And also when you see many, uh, you know, like when there's uh, like memorial things or anniversary days and so on, you will see that many of the, the, the parents, when they refer to this whole thing, they're smiling. They're smiling instead of being devastated. And this when it comes to the area of crisis actors, it's called duping delight. It's a uh, psych, uh, psychological uh, phenomena when people, specifically people that have a bit of psychopathic uh, um, setup, when they know that they're lying and manipulating you, they, they're sort of enjoying it on one level. So the body will smile. It's a giveaway. So many times when alleged uh, terror attacks and so on happen. Many, I just turn down the volume and I'm just watching the faces to yeah. see what's going on here. Mm. And so many times you will see when they're staged, when they're real, it looks totally different. When somebody really lost someone, totally different. Mm. But in these areas, oh, ISIS chopped the head of my father and then they're smiling. It doesn't match up at all. But, but are you, are you uh, alleging that there are no victims? I'm not saying anything. I'm saying I'm very confused. Yeah. I'm not saying no victims. I'm saying okay. that when you look at the aerial footage, what was happening there that day, yeah. and, and you claim that there was 550 people there, I find it very, very hard to, to match that because you, when you look at among the tents, if you look at the buildings, if you start going for the testimonies, how many was in that building? 13. You got two there. You got 14 there. You got eight there. It doesn't match up anywhere near 550. So yeah. I know I'm super speculating now. You know, I, just, I want to point that out mm -hmm. because I'm very confused of what actually was going on there and why this complete... Si wall of silence is is surrounding this whole thing and and that is where unfortunately i have to say that i think that norway is a country that has been been uh, dealt a very hard hand you know all, yeah. over the years yeah. after the second world war this beautiful beautiful nation mm -hmm. when you look at the powers that have been underneath uh, they've really got the population by by the balls and it's really treating them very badly. That's right. I, I think I think maybe a better explanation, for example, why nobody contacts you, etc., is that the majority of the population is completely brainwashed. Yeah. Because here, look, look, everybody is Americans too. But the problem abroad, especially in places like America, is that when you start feeling it on your own body, when you're losing your home, your work your people around you, their life, poverty, no health care, all, all this stuff. And, you know, things are just getting worse and worse and worse. All the money is used for war, etc. Mm. Then you start waking up. Norway doesn't have that incentive yet because of the oil money. Mm. So as long as we're hanging in there, we can still surf the illusions. But when, let's say, the dollar collapses, or, or when we start to feel it on our own body, people are going to wake up. That said, many are waking up, mm. but um, uh, it's still like 
and especially this uh, this uh, dumbing down of the culture, like just the fact that conspiracy theory is like uh, the cultural word now. It's lost all meaning. I mean, before you could have critical debate, you could have uh, corruption uh, investigations, you could have uh, honest disagreements. Today, everything is, you know, this conspiracy theory, conspiracy theory, mm-hmm. conspiracy theory. And in Norway, this is the, the press is co-opted by these uh, so-called journalists we don't have real journalists anymore they're just stenographers for power mm. so many people are extremely brainwashed uh, especially you, you see it in the covid relationship mm. they are rushing to take the vaccines they believe everything still to this day everybody in the world now knows that covid was a lab leak mm. the, uh, no intelligent person can't question it anymore because of all the facts that's finally been forced out. And we were very early on pushing out those facts. But in Norway, experts are still on the record trying to say it's a natural virus. That's how screwed up our culture is. Mm-hmm. So so I don't necessarily look at it as a conspiracy that people are... I think it's more that they are brainwashed. That's the conspiracy. They are brainwashed. So they don't want to. Because I know personally victims, people who were at Utøya. I know a lot of people who know these people. So there's no question that there were actual victims there. But the fact that the families and other people who should be interested in these things are not asking the right question, etc., I look at that as cultural pollution. Mm-hmm. The fact that I am asking you these questions is because I'm not that polluted. So I think more people would be interested in finding. And, and to be fair, a lot of people were interested in the beginning. In fact, there was a lot of conspiracy speculation in the beginning. Yep. And like you said, very correctly, you said in the beginning that people assumed it was Islamic terrorism. And the sentiment, I remember this day, for hours and hours and hours, everybody was like, let's go out in the street and find uh, foreigners and burn them on the fire. That was the sentiment. And when they heard it was not just a white guy, <laughs> but even a Norwegian, ethnical Norwegian guy, a lot of people got like really shocked because everybody thought it was Islamists. Mm -hmm. And I I think we should discuss this guy a little because the most weird things I've found for this is connected to Breivik himself. I'm sure you have some facts about him. For sure, for sure. I just want to point out also that uh, Norway, since the Second World War, have been very central in what is called mind control techniques uh, to there's uh, some high-level Norwegian doctors and so on that have been cooperating very deeply with the people from the CAA right. and many different operations, many different mental institutions that have been used for experiments and, and so on. True. And also I have from Chip Tatum, the CIA whistleblower, who is also a pilot for many years from uh, high level, both in the Iran contrast uh, flying drugs and weapons in and out of the US, but also, he's flown all of the presidents from Nixon up to George Bush Sr. And he said that many, many times he, he, they flew in to Norway and many operations were carried out uh, through Norway because it was such an easy entry point into also the, the close access to the Bofors weapons uh, industry in Sweden and so on. So Norway has been used 
in in ways that most normal people have no idea about. And the whole thing also where this dictatorship have just sort of grown from the inside and where people who have started asking questions, I mean, I've been shocked. I've been touring many times in, in Norway. I've been shocked of the differences from where people were able to just speak freely to yeah. if you ask questions, you were put in an asylum. Yeah. I mean, yeah. what the hell happened? And where people have had their children kidnapped by the government and all kinds of horror stories. And and this is a country, a nation that I, I used to love. I still do the nature wise. I absolutely adore it. But what happened to this poor little country? Well, I'll tell you one thing, and that's the fact that uh, uh, it shows that when you do investigations, it shows that Norway has the most, um, what you say, authoritarian believing population. I, we are extremely naive. We believe everything that the government tells us. I think part of the reason is that, look, if you're in America, it's so easy to be skeptical to government because it's so they, they can't even they're not even trying to hide anymore in America, in USA, that uh, so many institutions are rotten, that they are just or driving over the little man. Uh, it's just a complete dysfunctional country when it comes to the public yeah. public services in Norway. I have to say this. I, I know from the inside, they actually work. They actually work for the most part, especially compared to other countries like America. And it's so ingrained in us, this welfare state thing that, you know, do you know the word dugnad? Say again. It's a very special. Do you know the Norwegian word dugnad? No. No, even a Swedish, Danish person like you don't know it. It's a, I don't think the word exists outside Norway. It's a word uh, describing when everybody comes together and pulls practical work together for the benefit of the collective. Yeah. So we have that, that part of the culture is there. And because people from cradle to grave are dependent on the state or woven into the state somehow. Maybe you work for the state. You're certainly being helped out by the state. So we are kind of kept as um, uh, hostages. It's like a Stockholm syndrome, if you like. So I think that's part of the explanation. And and so the state works. And um, so people can't imagine anything else. And they, they wouldn't want, they would be terrified if we got our society where with more freedom, uh, because more freedom will also mean more risks, right? You don't have the safety net, etc. Mm. So, but this is a meta debate. Let's not waste more time on that. I think we should go to Breivik actually, because yeah. he's an interesting case study. He is a very, very interesting case study to say the least. And, <clears throat> And when you see the 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 reason that uh, I maybe have some different conclusions than other researchers is that I've been all over the world looking into these operations, and there's so many similarities to other cases. So by studying the other cases as well, then sometimes I can find connections that is not that obvious. Mm. And when it comes to Mr. Dreivik here. There's a lot of weird things around this individual. One of them is uh, his relationship with his lawyer. And his, uh, his lawyer was interviewed um, not long after this happened. And um, they said something like, so how is uh, Breivik doing? And he said, uh, well, we informed him about his, the fantastic thing he had just, I mean, not for, uh, the horrible thing 
he he said fantastic about what Breivik had said. Mm-hmm. And so that is a bit of a Freudian slip, a strange thing. But both of them used to work at the same building in Oslo. I think it was uh, near the Slotskata 15 in Oslo, which is the same building where Stay Behind had their headquarters mm-hmm. or had or has in Oslo. Mm-hmm. So here we have two that is totally connected through the location into an organization called Stay Behind or Gladio, which is the, uh, the bigger name. And Gladio is the terror tool of NATO that have been carrying out so many of these operations. My, my parents, I believe, were part of, of creating Gladio in Denmark called Absalon after the Second World War, but as a defense organ, organism. And then this in the mid 60s was turning to this terror tool that it is today. And here we have both the lawyer and Anis Breivik said they, they officially they didn't know each other, but being in the same building and being key in this, you have to, to put a question mark there. Yeah. But anyway, Anis Breivik was doing the exact same thing as so many other so-called patsies were doing or, or people that I've found out were patsies in other operations. And one of them is to make outrageous uh, demands. You know, I want silk uh, sheets. I want uh, whatever. And these are normally there to to really grind and get the emotions going in the population. You know, when it's like, oh, my God, he murdered 15, he murdered 55, 60, 80, whatever people. And now he wants a university education and I can't even afford this and this, you know, to get the emotions going. Mm. So... And it's also week in, week out. Normally, there's like reminders just to keep you annoyed, keep you irritated, and keep you focused on this. So, but there were these strange things around uh, how he was being treated. And especially, <clears throat> I went to the prison where he is said to have been um, held for years here in Skien. Did you, did you try getting audience with him? Is that even possible? Do you know? I... I always, since I know, you know, the powers of these operations, I know someone like myself, I get, if I get too close, not healthy for me. Okay. So I come discreetly from the outside and try to get as close as possible. And then I move out. Right, right. Okay. I'm a one-man band, you know, yeah, and I'm yeah. up against some really powerful sources. But anyway, sure. when, when I came to this uh, prison, this were years after, and, and, uh, one of the things I found really odd was that it was such a small prison, you know, and the, the walls, this is so, said to be high security big time, but it's there, it is a prison, but it's like very low key and in, in an industrial area in the outskirts, very way uh, far, sort of out way from the center. And when I came, he, he's a, he's in a he's in a luxury prison. He's playing video games. You know that, right? No, this at least that is what we're being told. Luxury yeah. thing, also to get annoyed. I mean, possibly he is, possibly he's not. Oh, yeah. But one of the things that uh, I was uh, talking to this CIA whistleblower years earlier, uh, who he said that uh, many many times in Springfield, Missouri, and other places where they've, they've been carrying on a lot of MK Ultra experiments, these scientists, and where he used to fly prisoners in and out there for he saw what he said the famous doctors to do their job, but. What he was describing was this, this, uh, the setup of these places where they were doing these things. And he said it's very often like a mental institution 
or a prison for teenagers or a real prison. But nearby would be, would be uh, buildings uh, that was very discreet. And also the, it, this would be surrounded by different uh, uh, buildings of specific companies. All of these uh, were like front companies, but to keep people away from the area. And he said, normally these, uh, the companies that were there were, uh, you know, like computer companies, high-tech security, uh, data security, armored, um, you know, body armors, these type of things. But it was like, and the, the people working there were part of guarding the operation, but discreet so that nobody from the outside would understand what was going on. It was just like another office building and so on. Mm-hmm. And then he said uh, what they, they handpicked these locations and because there was there sh- uh, one of the key things was that there should be a small little airstrip, a small little airport, hopefully without a flight tire uh, tower where they could fly in and out without being observed or registered. And then uh, they would transport whoever was going there in small little vans. They would drive them into one of these buildings with like carports. And then under that uh, building, this discrete building, there would be a tunnel system going in under uh, the wall and inside the prison. And then they could do whatever they wanted, you know, in and out, and nobody would understand what was going on there. Mm. And also he, was, uh, he, was, uh, he kept referring to what was called Evergreen, which is uh, Evergreen Aviation, which was 100% CA operation for many, many years. And if you notice, it was an Evergreen uh, ship that is said to have got stuck in the Suez Canal not long ago, mm-hmm. owned by indirectly the Swedish uh, family Wallenberg. But anyway, so when I went there and I, I spoke to him afterwards, one of the things that I noticed was that when I got close to the wall, I felt really weird very bizarre feeling in my stomach and like I felt I didn't feel well and I also noticed that the the grass was was dead you know around the wall Mm. like for five ten meters going out and I didn't understand at the time what was what that was but afterward when I spoke to Chip Tatum he said oh it's a death zone I said what no it's a death zone he said and he said it's part of the security of these areas what they do is they, uh, they di- uh, dig down uh, high-voltage cables underneath the soil, underneath, like, I don't know how far down, I would say, maybe 30, 40 centimeters like that. And it's, but they, the, the voltage is very, very high, and they can't have it turned off because in an emergency uh, situation, if they need to switch it on quickly, it will blow all of the fuses. So they need to have quite a high currency ongoing all the time wow. and that is what kills the grass wow. so and that is i believe what was what was uh, ma- what made me feel sick you know when i was in that area it was the, right. the magnetic around these cables yeah but anyway so when i was walking around that prison i started seeing the exact type of buildings that chip had told me about and one of them was a, a building with uh, i think five or six carports it's totally anonymous. You know, there's no signs on it. There's no nothing like that. And then there's five carports right like 30 meters from the wall that goes into to the prison. Very tightly close to the prison. There's nothing in between. And that was exactly what he had described to me, where they would go in and just in with a van, close the door, and then there would be a tunnel system in under and needs the building. So I was looking around and I started seeing, noticing that the, 
that the, the other office buildings around were, and I asked if somebody there, I said, are they normally, are there people there? No, no, not very often. We see a car here and then, but I don't even know really what it is, but it's been here for years, so I don't know. Wow. But, uh, and there was also, you know, uh, uh, computer, uh, IT services and, uh, and some security firm, exactly like he had described. So I asked the guy I was there with, I, I asked, by any chance, is there an airstrip nearby, a small little airport? And he said, yeah, yeah, it's just on the other side of, of that uh, hill over there, uh, just outside skiing. I mean, some, it ticked all of the boxes for it being a CIA operation, not a local right, right. Nor- Norwegian prison. Right. Yeah, because uh, it, it belongs to the story that CIA has had free reign in Norway for so long. They've been infiltrating, like I said last time we spoke, like Håkon Lee was on their payroll powerful people mm-hmm. so um, it is believable indeed norway would never stand up to uh, america no not at all not at all mm. anyway so on the side of that building with the carports there was a container that was painted you no know, like a, a freight container and that had been standing there for a long time i mean it, they even painted it in the same color as the building meaning it belonged to that one Mm. And so I, I walked around on the back of this building. I've taken photos of it as well. And then uh, on the back of that uh, container, it was this uh, very specific green color that Evergreen was using. I thought, whoa, what the hell is this? So I went on the back of this building and there was one container that was not painted. It was totally green. And on it, the whole side of it says Evergreen. And uh, the back of it, I've got the serial numbers, everything. I can send you the photos. U.S. blah, blah, State Department, blah, blah, you know, container, this sort of thing. So when I told CIA whistleblower Chip Tatum, I called him up and I said, listen, can I just refer to our conversation we had before and confirm what you said? And I described the whole area. I said, is this what you said? Is this what you said? Is this what you I said? He said, yes, 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 yes. And, uh, and then I said, uh, and then I found these containers here. And so he just started laughing and said, aha, our boys. That was his words, not ours. And this is a former commander of George Bush Sr.'s private hit team co- called Pegasus being part of carrying out at least 14 assassination. I mean, this is a high level player. Mm. And he identified it as an, a CIA operation around that prison. So let's go to Anders Bering Let's let's do that. Let me just say uh, before you do that uh, one interesting. I, I don't put much stock in this, okay? But but it, it has to be mentioned. The boss of the Norwegian Freemasonic Order, the main order in Norway, which is not connected to the American Freemasons or the British. They are independent. Actually, they're connected to the Swedish one. <laughs> but he lives right across Utøya and had panorama view to what happened. Mm. He, in fact, he was one of the first people who called in the shootings, the sound of the shootings. And he was also uh, like all the neighbors in the area where was uh, interviewed. But then people would say, oh, yeah, the Masons are in on it. Well, he's been living there his whole life. So it's kind of, but the interesting thing, there are Masonic connections that I'm sure you're going to point to soon. The, the massive with, with bravery coming no the massive massive connections massive yeah. connections yeah. and as far as i remember right this gentleman 
saw he was in central uh, Oslo when it happened. And then he took the car and drove out and was one of the first people to call in from Utøya. So as far as, if I remember right, he was in both locations that day. And that is okay. not just being anyone. Okay. But the Freemasonic networks in the background are so powerful here. Yeah. So when it comes to Anders Breivik here, there are strange things around him. There's strange photos. There's strange, uh, the, the way, you know, that it's like not one person that is being presented, but it seems like there's four. Uh, up until the court court cases, there were four different individuals where you cannot get facial recognition to identify them as one. So that is like, what is going on here? There's something bizarre. And then they said that they had this uh, court held at the prison because they say, oh, because of the security thing, we can't uh, leave, let him leave prison. So they were in the gymnastic uh, hall there, where, which had a background, a light green background, which is almost like green screen. I mean, it's very good if you want to manipulate images to have some certain things like that. Mm. But when he, he was being brought into the courtroom and so on, there were, there were weird things going on. And I didn't know. It, I just had this feeling that something not right. And there was one, uh, one day was he, when he was brought in. This was live footage, they said. He was brought in, and there were two cameras filming it from two different directions when he's being brought in uh, with a prison guard in front of him. And there were there was these uh, photographers taking photos. So there was these flashlights coming from the cameras. And I just felt there's something not right here. So I put the two camera footages next to each other. And when you when you say play and they go simultaneously, the flashes are not synced. The flashlights from the camera does not sync, even though two cameras are filming the same thing. This tells you this is being manipulated. Do you, do you see what I'm saying? This, yeah. had it been natural, of course, if a flash goes off, both cameras would show the same. But I put them together. I presented them many times. And you can see it's not. And then there was this uh, uh, whole thing with him doing a Hitler salute in court, where instead of approaching the judge, this female judge, when you look at her heritage with the family backgrounds and so on, this is not just anyone. Uh, it's one of these uh, families that have been heavily involved in, uh, yeah, unseen power, whatever. But anyway, he should logically stand up against her and do, do the Hitler salute. But instead, he does it uh, towards a prison guard, mm. we're, we're being told. Mm. But when you look at how his arm comes out, really weird, like it, it comes out in a very strange angle. And boom, comes out like that. Mm. And it's a little bit too short. So that I, I noticed it right away. And and I pointed it out, uh, you know, on international radio interviews. I've done almost a thousand. I've done a thousand, by the way. <laughs> and the contrast of the arm compared to the contrast of the rest of him, you know, the, the suit and so on, was very different. Right. If you enlarge it, right. you see this is totally manipulated. Right. I pointed it out. Suddenly it was taken down, and then uh, just a day or so after, we see still photos of him doing it, but whereas high quality looks strange, but a lot better. Okay, uh, I have to say also that there is no clear evidence that he is connected to Nazis in the, in the meaning national socialists. What we do know, just to uh, let people know, is that 
He was a member almost his entire uh, adult life of what's called a progressive party, which is not actually a left party, as people would think from the name, because in America, progressive is left. It's the most right wing we have uh, of the big parties. Yeah. Uh, but they were too conventional for him. So uh, he, he moved on to smaller, but he has been associated with, better to say, fascist and anti-islamic he was he was not against jews or israel in fact uh, there's interesting connections to people have speculated mossad because he did have a mentor that was zionist and um, he's had can i ask you yeah i'm sorry to interrupt you but no no where do you where have you got all of this information about is it when was Everything was pumped out right afterwards, and then through newspapers and so on the background, or have you... newspapers, but but yeah, through deeper analysis in the before. Yeah, but have you? Yeah, before. Have you actually? Yeah. Have you actually met anyone who knew him? Have you met anyone who personally knew or have seen him in these circumstances? Uh, not, Because I've never not in these circumstances, but uh, uh, and I think most of these are online associations. Uh, exactly. Like, like for example, he was, uh, you know, Templar. He was anti-Islam. Yeah, it's well known that he was anti-Islamic. I mean, that's his whole uh, rationale. But he, yeah, but, what, but that's not necessarily Nazi because Nazis are more concerned about Jews than um, Muslims. Yeah. In fact, <laughs> there are even Muslim Nazis. So, so it's just very inaccurate when people say Nazi because that implies national socialism. But if they wanna, if they wanna smear him. Of course, they're going to make him show the Hitler uh, salute. Exactly. That doesn't that doesn't fit the profile for someone who's, in fact, sympathetic to to Israel. So you you would think that the official it doesn't match up at all. It no. doesn't make any sense. And the manifesto was to a large extent taken copied from the Unabomber's manifesto. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So it's like. Uh, And also, his Facebook page was up, updated after he was put in prison. I mean, how, how you, it's got all of the signs that there's something totally different going on in the background. Yeah, that's right. I, I, I experienced that myself, actually, the Facebook page thing. It's, it, it's bizarre. To, when you see it live and suddenly like, whoop, and then it <laughs> gets shut down. Yeah. What the hell happened? Yeah. Yeah, but that is also standard procedure. Many of times I've seen it, you know, so it's uh, it's interesting to say the least. But but another association he had, he was a neophyte, like a, a fresh member, like a low-level member of the Freemasonic uh, lodge called uh, uh, yeah, St. John and St. Ulo to the three columns, which is one of the many uh, lodges of the Norwegian Freemasonic order. So so it's that, and it was a pistol club. It was an anti-Islamic organization and some kind of Templar thing. But I know uh, like esoteric organizations, etc. And it's not like a traditional, it's more like a political thing, calling itself Templars, but no tracks of Nazis. Mm. But I find it, look, if he's a plant, if he's a patsy, if he's somehow involved professionally, We have to look at deep state connections, and there are potential people who have could have primed him, who have could be connected to intel. For example, like I said, there is 
speculation about a Mossad connection. Yep. So we have to find. So have you found any like associates he have who could have been in on this, who could have been representatives of of the networks? What, what I found, what I found is that he is a a patsy knowingly or not mm. that's a different one or yeah. mk also controlled or not i mean his behavior calling in from the island very odd yeah you know his behavior when people described him on the island walking around shooting very odd true and uh, very much mk ultra type which would be very uh, appropriate for an operation like this as a patsy Yeah, yeah, but why wouldn't he? In the, in I was watching the court case. He had a perfect opportunity in the court case to say, for example, "Hey, I'm innocent. I'm a patsy." Hey, people. He has had opportunities to invoke public attention. Mm. Every opportunity he gets, he just does political speeches, mm. like, "Oh, we wake up. Uh, oh, our culture, our people, whatever stuff like that." So that ma- makes me think he's not like. Like a like a random patsy. He's no. obviously, if they've used him, he's in on it. If you see what I mean. Yeah, but that is also when he when you see where he used to work, the same building as his lawyer, and this is the stay behind Gladio Network headquarters in Norway. Yeah, is that a coincidence? Well, <laughs> and also the backgrounds with the the whole thing is one big uh, net of strange or strange i wouldn't call them strange if you look at how these operations are carried out then it makes absolutely yeah. total sense yeah. there are red flags all over the place all over the place so many times also uh, you know like how I'm, i want to speculate a little bit sure many times when you see these people you say oh he was sentenced to 24 years in prison and put away okay fine let's say somebody, how do you know that they are in that prison? Because like they could go walk in one door and then they could walk out the back door yeah. uh, if they were an asset in an operation, you know, and be living a life in the Bahamas doing great and then coming back yeah. for, okay, we can do one year anniversary, there's going to be some articles written, whatever, you know, these type of things. So many times when they are asset, now we're talking like, Uh, real assets for these agencies. Mm. These people are um, trained in this area. They they perform and they disappear, and then they have a different, to- totally different life. They can be a wandering asset. They can be a sleeping asset. They can be out on the uh, outside of the prison doing things. You know, because no, no, he was in prison. So how could it be him that carried out that operation or whatever? So and so in this area. Like when you talked about the the court case, I mean this was live TV. I mean, like you saw, there was at one time I was sitting. He was the the judge or the DA was saying stuff against him that he would should protest against because it was not true according to his way of explaining things. Mm. But what he was doing, uh, he was being filmed from the side. He was nodding with this little smile of his. He was just nodding. Mm, mm. And then he nodded. And then he nodded. And then he nodded. And after a while, I thought, that's a bit strange. The way he nodded was not really. So I, I cut it out. You know, I filmed the whole thing. And I cut out that thing. 
and then I put it, and it was a loop. Uh, you could also see there was a little uh, button on his on his shirt that just clicked, like there was a little click in the loop. Right. So what was going on there? It's heavy manipulation of something. I don't trust that court mm. case at all. Mm. I don't trust the whole operation at all as something else than an operation. And like a state theater play, the whole shebang of the, now he's in prison, now he's that, now he's this. I have, it's difficult for me to, to believe that that is actually what's going on. And it's very odd. Also. Yeah, he changed his name in 2017 to Fjordolf Hansens. Yeah. <laughs> but his his face is very well known in Norway. If he if if they have, like are going to retire him, they have to do it abroad. Yeah. Uh, but I don't think he's he he may be an asset, but I think he's like patsy asset because and people like that they have to isolate. They can't let him retire him like they did with Palmer, like they can't trust that he, he's going to be moving around about, right? So either they have to kill him, which is risky in case they need to bring him out to the public and show him off, or they need to keep him super isolated. And he has gotten what we call forvaring because we don't have a death sentence mm-hmm. and we don't really have life in prison either, but uh, we do have this thing that in special cases, they are so dangerous deemed that they can never be let really let loose to the public. So in, in, in all practicality, he's going to be isolated for the rest of his life, which is as good as killing him when it comes to stopping information. Because if he is in on this somehow, he could talk about his connections, other shooters, stuff like that. They can't risk that, you know. No, because he was, uh, if he was part of it, he, his part was very, very small. And yeah. I, I truly believe that what we're looking at is a massive operation, highly, uh, very skillfully carried out, where my speculation or what I would put my money on with the Delta team was uh, directly involved mm-hmm. in the whole thing. Mm-hmm that it was a Delta team member that was in the van. The reason why he was carrying the whole outfit on him, and there's also two, two other uh, individuals that are hiding in the rubble, running around when you see the footage afterwards, <coughs> or both of them black in black uh, outfits and with the helmets and everything, is because they were in this charged area where the implosion was going to take, uh, take off. Had something happened before, he would have been a very vulnerable, this individual. Mm. But then you see the whole way that uh, that the alleged uh, or the Delta team came in, the whole operation, and also what was going going on in other areas with these helicopters and so on. It's, uh, and and what I'm being informed by uh, CIA assets and other people is that the the Mossad and the CIA, both of them, were in the background of this operation, also on location, and so. It, it is a big mystery, but the official story, I can just say 100% in my world, absolute BS, 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 and BS. Mm. There's not a true word anywhere there. Mm. But what actually went on, we still have to do everything we can to try and find out because uh, this, is, uh, this is a big, big operation. And uh, the th- what people forget is that it has effects in our lives that we are not aware of. I mean, Norway was just about to back out on, on NATO and said, uh, you know, we're not going to take part of these bombing, totally unjust bombing raids 
that you're carrying out in the Middle East. And so what happened, boom, also they were criticizing Israel, yeah. not a clever way thing to do uh, up until now. And like uh, some of the leaders sometimes say, sometimes we just have to, to twist the arms of nations and boom, the mass shooting happened and suddenly Norway was back in the game. Yeah, but but, but look, I, I don't want to let go completely of Breivik yet, because if he is uh, an asset here, either a dupe or uh, deliberately, we have to find connections, one potential connection, which means that he's not a very random guy, is that he actually went to Liberia for diamond trading. You know, in, in 2012, Liberia. And he said himself, he met a Serbian, um, what you call professional military um, mercenary. Yeah. And um, he, um, ha- he had two employers listed in the, uh, you know, he had this fake uh, farm thing. He, I think he called it Breivik Bio Farm or something, where he was having the, fertilizer stuff mm-hmm. now in this there was two employers there now if these were real people they would obviously know about this thing because he didn't uh, grow potatoes and stuff like that and so we have and, and we have also like you said we have reports of different people on the island so and, and then there's his mentor in this anti-islamic thing so there are people in his network who could be easily connected to to you know, you could either say to the deep state, or if you think it's like a like a terror network, like a fascist terror network, you could also say that. But of course, we all know that all terror networks at the end of the day report to some intel agency. <laughs> it's like I ask you who would have the power to make so many things not work this day? Not Breivik. Not Breivik. <laughs> that would have to be, you know. Not the- any key player. You have to go very high up yeah. to be able to have that influence in so many different areas. Had it been one thing, had it been two, five, ten things, but like when every single step of the whole thing just do not work, then you have to ask yourself, what the hell is this? That's right. And then once you start looking into the people that has the power to stop that, the people that has the power to and was also rewarded afterwards where their careers went straight up, who were they? You know, who were they? Other people lost their child, uh, their children were slaughtered, massacred, and other people that were in this operation suddenly had their career go straight up. Yeah. And I would strongly suggest also that Eskil Pedersen, uh, the youth, uh, the leader of the youth party that was on this island that behaved very, very bizarre mm. and that has never been able to explain why he did it, how he did it, and who was actually on the boat with him. Mm-hmm. When Jens Stoltenberg, and Jens Stoltenberg and Pedersen has many, many times uh, spent time together in a way that is like a little more than, well, apparently they like each other a lot. But I have from insiders that that Eskil is actually the illegitimate son of uh, Jan Stoltenberg, but outside marriage. Wow. And when you heard that, uh, when he had this... Kind of looks, he, he, he looks a little like Jan Stoltenberg, actually. Yeah, he does Meaning that suddenly you have three people, Grohalen Brundtland, Jan Stoltenberg, and Eskil Pedersen, three key 
elements in this whole thing very connected. Yeah. I mean, uh, Jens Stoltenberg took over after Gro Harlem Brundtland and Eskil Pedersen was sort of like the one coming up. When when he had this big uh, memorial thing in the, uh, was it in the uh, cathedral in, in Oslo, uh, Jens Stoltenberg stood up and then he said, he said, the whole church was packed with people, family members, people from the government, all different aspects of life were in there. So how did he, how did he open his speech? He said, your majesties, dear Eskil, and the rest of you. Mm. What was that? What, what was that? Eskil, at that point, I mean, he should have had a big fat kick in the butt. How the hell could you not help these, these kids? I mean, at least you should have tried anything like that. But instead, he was raised up on a pedestal in a very, very odd way. Yeah. And uh, so I, I think we're looking at bloodlines here that uh, Dear Eskil and uh, Jens are not, not related. They are father and son. Mm. And that also this is why he has not been persecuted, why he has not been pushed up against the wall more, Eskil, and asked questions. And then you also have to see uh, Dear Jens Stoltenberg's involvement in the big, big operations, including the COVID operation in October of 2019, uh, where, where he was key once again in one of these massive operations. That It's one of the things that I, uh, I can refer to. It's uh, 39 coordinated attacks that were stopped on October the 23rd and 24th, 2019, that should have been part of the COVID operation, but was stopped indirectly. I was part of doing it. Mm. So... Jens Stoltenberg, not just anyone. Gro Harlem Brundtland, the architect of Agenda 21, which is what the world is right now experiencing. It's just unbelievable. So the, what happened in Norway that day, that sunny day on that beautiful island and in central Oslo, big, big, big when it comes to world events. So it's not just a local yeah. thing for Norwegian into it is massive yeah and and i know we're on overtime now but i i really like us to just spend a little time on on the bigger picture too and your cue there i, I want to say that in my analysis it looks to me as if of course the, the, the these players are not representatives of any particular nations it's, it's not as if they're doing uh people's or a nation's will in their politics but Still, they are ascending in networks within nations. And exactly. the nations I look at as the real axis of evil, to paraphrase Bush, is um, United States, United Kingdom, Turkey, Saudi Arabia, and Israel. It looks to me as if those five uh, nations, yeah, and, but- uh, and, and if we were going to remove one of them, I would remove Turkey because I think they are small players here, but they are really doing the worst things in the world today on so many levels, everything from war to torture to pollution to you name it. And their intel, uh, of course, NATO, you could also tie in NATO, a big player, but it's kind of also like UK, America. It's kind of kind of the same kind of player as NATO. But then, and then you can say the intel organizations within these groups but do you have any perspectives on these players? Is there any other identification that is even closer 
than what I have mentioned now. And just you just you thought about this network, because I have heard one of my listeners told me that you've been tracking a network that goes all the way back to, I think, the 50s and, and JFK and Cuba and all this stuff. So any thoughts about this thing? Because this is, I think, is probably the most important para perspective to your work. You there? Hello? Hello. If you can hear me, I can't hear you. Very poor timing. <laughs> Hello. Yeah, now I can hear you. I, I don't know, it cut out. Oh, so you didn't hear me either? I heard you were talking about Turkey and Saudi and Israel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's important to hear your perspective on that. So, I am more on the street level and, you know, tracking down assassins and, and exposing these type of operations. But, of course, I have a, um, a feeling of the bigger picture. Yeah. I think that if you look at nations as such, it's a mistake to do that yeah. because what we're looking at are very powerful individuals or power-hungry individuals from many different nations that are through different networks, power networks, uh, like the uh, Freemasonry, through the Bilderberg Group, Trilateral Commission, the Council of Foreign Relations, Club of Rome, Skull and Bones, these type of, of uh, institutions, hidden institutions, mm. that's where the power grid is. And then they're using nations as almost like uh, pieces on a chessboard. And But it's true, if you take what is going on at the moment that goes under the label of Agenda 21, what is happening here is that you've got, I, I don't know how many people that have uh, now signed up for Agenda 21, but that is a, a, a vision of absolute hell that uh, there was 179 nations that signed it in 93 when this whole thing was started. And I think many more have signed than, than that. And what that is, the plan is on a local, national and international level, carry out the same agenda in all of these different nations at the same time, which is exactly what we see. And But it's being orchestrated by a group that is way above that. But <clears throat> the idea is in a, uh, of Agenda 21 is just a different variation of the New World Order agenda. Mm. But Agenda 21, what it stands for is that everything, everything, all water, all air, all land, all land, all minerals, all assets, all information, all armies, all police forces, all intellectual property, every type of property at all will be owned by a global state. Everything, you will not be allowed any property at all. And they, they present it as it would be fantastic for you because you don't have to worry about anything, mm. including your children will be property of the state. And this is something that they're pushing so fast now. And it's also what explains why when you look at so many different nations now, the way that they have reacted against this alleged COVID threat here is they, they reacted identical. They, they dealt with it almost in an identical way. And that is Agenda 21 behind it. And this, the power of that is that it's on a national level, no, sorry, on a local 
local level, national and international level at the same time. Meaning that wherever you are, you go down to your local courthouse, <clears throat> they will be attending this whole thing the same way as it would be on a national level and together with on other countries on an international level. It also goes under the name of the Fourth Industrial Revolution, where the World Economic Forum is behind that. And the World Economic Forum is just another name of more or less the same players, the 1% that are messing with the rest of us and just never gets enough. So what I believe is it's, it's a mistake if you, if you see nations as the, England is doing that, Germany is doing that, Belgium is doing that. Of course, it looks a little bit different, but that's not where the game is being played. And But I totally agree with you. I mean, when you look at a so-called state like Saudi, I mean, my God, and so much uh, financing into <clears throat> what goes under the label of terror, it comes from there. And you got Israel, not Israeli people as such, but you got some very core element when it comes to terror. I mean, they invented the, the whole thing called terrorism in the 70s. And Netanyahu and, and these players, I mean, my God, when it comes to oh, yeah, the, the, yeah. oh, the mayhem that is being carried out in the world, these are the, the players. And then, of course, you got the war center in the US, you got the financial in Washington, D.C., you got the financial center in the old city of London, and you got the religious center in the Vatican. And these three power centers in the world are exchanging everything from information to pedophile trafficking, organs, oil, arms, arms, um, drugs. Don't, don't, you, don't you have an Intel corporation called uh, something like, what is it called? Is it the Five Eyes? Five Eyes, Five Eyes, um, Nine Eyes and, and 49 Eyes is a secret exchange of intelligence. Yeah, I mean, these are spy agreements. And they were, Five Eyes was created after the Second World War. It was, uh, let me see, it was US, uh, UK, Australia, New Zealand, and Canada, I think. And then that grew to nine eyes, and now it's 14 eyes, Jeez. where Sweden is involved as well as a neutral. Oh, my God. Thank you very much, Not. Yeah. So, so there's, when, when you see these things that are carried out nowadays on an operational level, it's more, more or less every time NATO countries or nations that is also involved through five eyes, nine eyes, or 14 eyes, These are sort of the, the backyard where they can play these games. Yeah. So I don't know if I answered your question, but this is... Uh, but then, of course, there's a, a higher level, and this is a, a level where it's very hard to know what is actually behind that power structure because these are, if we're talking individuals, these are not people you can find on the internet, I believe. Very anonymous, very... Uh, very not known by anyone except the people behind the scenes. So these should be powerful in terms of either in terms of a lot of money being oligarchs or in terms of being high level intel, military intel. No, it's a combination. It's a, it all is the head of the octopus. Mm. I mean, you, you need to, con they need to control everything, everything. And that is, uh, I mean, they've got companies that are just, unbelievable like Serco it's a company that most people haven't heard about it oh my god oh my god yeah I think I, I wanted you to talk about them that's the guys from the Cuba crisis and, and stuff like that right it, JFK they, they're just oh no 
No, they're, they're later. Uh, it's a, a later uh, creation, but it's it's uh, an expansion of the same. Uh, there was a, co- a company called Paramindex that was involved in the JFK. Right. And that has then grown into and developed, I believe, into what is called Serco. But Serco has got its tentacles everywhere. But it's it's not only that. It's the, It's like networks inside networks inside networks inside networks totally compartmentalized uh, so it's very very hard to get a grip of who is actually running the show have you done any work like presentations and writings on the networks within networks and i'm, I'm not talking about ops and actual uh, like uh, Palma, JFK, Utøya, but have you done more writings into the meta stuff, like who's who and no. all this stuff? Like tr- no, because no, I, no, I haven't. I've left that to other researchers because we're talking massively big areas and that yeah. demands yeah. incredible research. Because uh, and so, on an early stage, I just uh, decided. I need to specialize somewhere because when you listen to many people that are into these areas, they, it, they sound like they're all over the place. You know, they have, they, yeah, it's yeah. like aliens and then it's the Vatican and then it's the Jesuits and then it's yeah. assassins and then it's that. Yeah. And you're sitting in the other end like, oh yeah, you have no idea what they're <laughs> talking about if you're not in the area. So mm-hmm. I felt if I want to make a difference, I really need to specialize somewhere. And then I tried to become like a laser beam in that area as sharp as possible so that I can be part of exposing and uh, the areas that I've uh, specialized in. Yeah, is- but you, you you did very early on um, expose. Uh, was it connected to JFK? I forgot. I read about this when I researched you, that you've been talking about a particular group of assassination assassins yeah operation uh, 40 operation what now operation 40 40 yeah that's it tell us about them but listen we we can go on uh, on and on it's oh it's a big uh, it's a big uh, well just give us the the, the quick uh, run around and we'll we'll close down this Operation 40 was a group of assassins that was put together. It was under the Eisenhower administration and uh, Vice President uh, Richard Nixon was given the task to put together a mobile unit of assassins and people that could be used for blackmail, extortion, whatever needed and be transported to whatever country around the world where they had problems with people, you know, had it been the CIA or whatever. Mm. And so... Uh, three old grave wolves from the CIA and um, E. Howard Hunt. Uh, you had uh, uh, Ted Shackley and uh, um, come on, Howard Benson. He was the handler of, of uh, Lee Harvey Oswald anyway. That's right. These three people were, were given the task to recruit mostly exiled Cubans that was escaping from Cuba at that time. We're talking late 50s, early 60s here. And train them in the Everglades down in Florida, in Guatemala, and at Lake Pontchartrain in Louisiana. In every way, um, any type of uh, killing method, you know, blowing things up, poisoning things up, uh, you name it, they were, they were trained in jungle warfare, whatever. And... <clears throat> They were then, the idea was first to take out Fidel Castro. They failed with that, but then they started having a problem with JFK. And so many of the, the shooters in Dealey Plaza and the people that have been part of covering 
that whole JFK assassination covered up, were members of Operation 40, together with working together with people from the mob, from the Secret Service, from the CIA at that day in Dili Plaza onwards. But then these people have followed the man that was put in charge of the financial part of it uh, to funnel the funds into this group of assassins was... uh, was George Bush Sr. as a young man. He was a young asset, a CIA asset, uh, when this whole thing happened. He was in Dili Plaza. He was in the Dallas Expendium when the shot, shots were fired. And he has then used these people his whole career to get rid of enemies or obstacles right. or whatever. So right. Operation 40 has been key in so, so many different assassinations around the world. And yeah. one of the people were even in... In uh, Stockholm, just a few months before the assassin- alleged assassination of Olaf Palme, trying to recruit a local hitman there. Wow! So, right to say it, to show, and they were key, they were key in in uh, the whole drug trading in the Vietnam War. They were key in what was called Operation Phoenix in the mass extinction program in Vietnam. They were key in the Iran-Contra scandal. They were part of uh, killing uh, Che Guevara. They were part of killing Pablo Neruda, the the Nobel Prize Prize winning uh, Chilean um, poet. They were part of many different uh, military coups. They were the overtake of, of Allende. They were there. Right. There, there has to be Nazi ties here because I know that um, Mengele was actually involved in the assassina- assassination of Che Guevara. So there has to be, uh, and, and there probably is because these are CAA but, more than anything. But right? that, that was bizarre what you just said, that Mengele was part of taking out Che Guevara. Yep, yep. It's I know it sounds weird, but... Uh, uh, it's it's a it's a long story. I can I can send you, or, or you can probably find it yourself. But yeah, you send it to me because that that I would like to look into. Right. But now I am very hungry. Yeah, I know. And I know. Um, but I I have to thank you for your valuable time. And I know your family is waiting for you. <laughs> probably dinner time over there now. Or yes, indeed. <laughs> yeah. So uh, okay, but you you've given us much to think about. A mind blow. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make up my mind what I think about this when I listen to her back at our conversation because you're just overwhelming us with the details, right? So it needs to sink in. But at least we can agree that there's a lot of fishy aspects uh, concerning the, this as there usually is with these kind of things. Although we may not know everything today, hopefully in the future, now that, uh, because it's so important to hear research like this, so we can make up our minds and we can know, and especially the future can know, mm. uh, you know, what was thought and what people were uh, knowing at the time. So uh, uh, unlike what happened with the JFK, where everything was, you know, just strangled down these days, it looks to me as if the more stuff like this happen, the quicker people are to yeah. understand that something is fishy. Yeah. And that's a good thing. Of course. Okay. No, but if I can just uh, refer people regarding this whole thing to my presentation, when Terror Stock Norway, I did that in Copenhagen sure. some years ago. And in that, I have a PowerPoint thing where you can just follow it, you know, doom, 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 with images and also, um, yeah. And then that- So it's, it's online today. 
yeah, they they keep shutting it down everywhere. But if if you can't find it, then go to lightonconspiracies.com. Uh, I've got a thousand interviews of mine in the membership area. Uh, I've done all over the world. And then uh, there's one uh, topic where it says um, oldest handpicked videos. And among these videos are When Terror Struck Norway. And it's a two and a half hour presentation where you just go step by step by step through the whole thing. Mm. So you can see for yourself because it's a lot easier once you start seeing um, images and maps and where, yeah. you know, so yeah. you can see for yourself. So yeah, please do that if you're interested. Yeah. Very important to, to, to see those details yourself. Okay, man. Excellent. Uh, then uh, I just have one thing to tell you, and that's Namaskar. Namaste. <laughs> Namaste. Namaste. A great one. Take care. Perfect. Okay. okay. Take care. Yeah, I'll, I'll send you send the, the links, links when they're up. Fantastic. Fantastic. Thank, you Thank you so much. much. Okay. Okay. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Thanks again to Ula for coming back and patiently explaining to us what doesn't add up in the Bravey case. And again, I remind you, everything you hear in our shows is just puzzle pieces, data points for you to extend your own paradigm and explore reality from your own point of view. Sometimes you'll agree with us, sometimes you'll disagree, sometimes you'll suspend belief. Uh, in this case, I, I'm not even sure what I myself think. I need to re- I need to listen to this show myself and process it, but I certainly don't regard this as a clear case of an op. Um, it could be, or it may be what it looks like. At any rate, I'm sure Ula and many others will not let this matter drop easily. So who knows, maybe in time, as in all other cases, <laughs> more info will uh, emerge to help us understand better. Now, a quick fact check. I claimed in the show today that Mengele was involved in the assassination of Sheh Guevara. But <laughs> I got my Nazis mixed up. Yes, Mengele was a murderer, but uh, he preferred the laboratory to implement his shenanigans. I was, in fact, referring to the butcher of Lyon, Klaus Barbie, expert in torturing children and slaughtering people en masse. And yes, he headed uh, the team to hunt down Che Guevara together with CIA and the local fascist stooges of the Bormann Brotherhood. In fact, a certain David Sanchez Morales was involved too. Uh, You'll hear us go a little about him in my show with Dr. Joseph Farrell called Fourth Reich Endgame. But uh, and, and, and Morales was involved in every, every bad thing that happened back in the day. In fact, I think he's also a key player in the team of troublemakers, assassinators, etc. that Ulle has been tracking down. I'm talking now about the ground team, not who's calling the shots and ordering them, etc. But the actual boots on the ground, getting blood on their hands kind of people. Anyway, not only did they torture and subsequently execute Che, he even kept his ring as a trophy. So now that's clarified. 
Before always part, let me give you a great, some great news. We are now on Rumble. Oh, I really wanted to get on there because I think it has the chance of becoming an alternative to YouTube. I mean, ODC, God bless them, uh, we are there too. But I think Rumble has more users. But in either case, please subscribe to us uh, at Rumble and or ODC. Even if you do prefer using YouTube, it really helps our shows when we get more subscribers. That's like the currency of podcasters. Uh, and uh, yeah, so the same goes for podcasts when you listen to us, Apple or, or iTunes or Spotify or Google or some of the less evil smaller ones. Find us, sub. Um, we do receive crypto coins, so and we're going to have shows about crypto in the future. So feel free to throw us a Bitcoin or a Ethereum or whatever. You'll find uh, the recipient code at our website. So yeah, and we're going to expand to BitChute too. I'm, I'm discussing with them how that can happen. And I think that will be it for now. Well, maybe Minds, but I don't think Minds is good for videos. But we'll definitely establish an info site a la Facebook. So that's still left to be done. But for now, Rumble, ODC, soon BitChute, and of course YouTube. And if you really want to be a doll, sub everywhere <laughs> across the board. Do it, do it, just do it. It really helps us get the best guests on and better, making better shows. Um, I'm still in a situation where half my guests don't come on. So help us get bigger uh, so we can become a better show also for you. That's it. Thanks for hanging in there. Thanks to my team. Thanks to your support. I've been your host, Al. Be seeing you. Number one.